And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report. It is Thursday, Thursday edition, November 6th, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, November 16th, 2017. Struggle on the date, that's really a problem, isn't it? Welcome to the Hagman Report. we got a great show lined up for you today. The first half hour, we're going to be going over some news, some analysis information that's uh, that's been out there. How does it all fit? We have to keep focused, I believe, keep focused on exposing the criminality uh, the deeds of darkness, the evildoers in the swamp, the swamp denizens. Um, of course, for new folks just joining us, tuning in live, heard live weeknights, 7 to 10 p.m. right here on the Global Star Radio Network, as well as BTR, Blog Talk Radio, the fine folks there. Uh, you can also find our archives at BTR. I would urge everyone to uh, to click the follow button there on BTR. Join, join in and uh, follow us, as well as follow us on social networking, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, independent uh, Twitter feeds, as well as the show, all of that. Uh, uh, oh, we have a Patreon account as well, our Patreon initiative as well. We thank everyone for uh, for supporting us, supporting this program that bring that it gives us the ability to bring you the best of the best of the best of guests. Somebody's talking in my ear. <laughs> no, Eric no, just it, said that the rewards on. On Patreon will be released soon. Okay. And there's Good. a few different tiers of, of donation levels. In each tier, you receive something from us, whether it is, um, you know, free digital stuff from that to, uh, the top tier, which gets an extra hour. The top tier is I come out and clean your kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, the, and the top tier is not that, that much money, but you get an extra, um, broadcast from us every month. And we're still working out. Yeah. Uh, different. We're, we're trying to be packages, right, right, and it's you know this. Uh, we look, we've got big plans, we really do, and I'm I'm telling you right now, with the ever changing landscape, the geopolitical landscape, the political landscape. Wow, are, are you guys tired? Are, are you? T- let me just ask you. I, I started my my morning show this way. By the way, we have our independent shows as well to complement our. The, this is our flagship show, the Doug Hagler Radio Show. That's from nine to ten. Eastern time, and all you have to do is go to BTR, that's Blog Talk Radio, or Global Star Radio Network. Um, just go to Hagman Report, and you can, you can find it. And of course, two to three, John and Joe do their show. And we cover different, different topics. I'm very news and politics centric, and, uh, well, I guess Joe and John are as well. Um, but anyway, so, so watch for that. And, uh, a lot of people, I've heard from a lot of people who listen to my show, and I don't know, have you heard this? Uh, a lot of people that download the show, and many people, uh, listen to, listen to me on their way to work, especially on the East Coast, or I'm sorry, the West Coast, because of the time, but, uh, getting a lot of good response from that. And I, and I've, I've seen a lot of great response on, on, uh, your, yours and John's show. So, anyway, let's get right into a couple of things. Judicial Watch, there's two different items here that I think are extremely important. Uh, there are new Hillary Clinton classified emails which were discovered. This, of course, just announced today by Judicial Watch. 
Judicial Watch today, they released 109 pages of new Hillary Clinton emails. Now, this is during her period of time when she was Secretary of State. Now, there, don't forget, there are three issues. And by the way, if you're looking and wondering why I'm, this mic is here, the, this, I hit it. And Eric, I mean, Eric is still mad at me for that. And I am too, because I, I actually, I, seriously, I just kind of hit it for those watching or those listening on Global Star or BTR. I can't see what I'm doing, but I, I, I moved my, my hand quickly and it, I don't know if you can see it right there. It's, anyway, so, uh, but that's, but also the, we've had reports of low volume on my end to the point where people are, are emailing me saying, stop mumbling. And if you know me, I'm not mumbling. I grumble, but I don't mumble. But anyway, so that explains that. But, but no, the 109 pages of new Hillary Clinton emails from her tenure as Secretary of State were released today. Heavily redacted. Yeah, but listen to, well, why? Okay, why do they have to be, see, here's, here's the reason why. And, and, um, well, you know what? Let me finish my thought that I started out with. The three areas of concern, in my view, anyway. You've got Uranium One. And Shepard Smith, despite what you have said, you are incorrect, factually incorrect, Mr. Smith, on so many issues that you brought up. I have a report, by the way, I'm, I'm preparing, and um, you've heard that story before, right? I haven't written a thing in like, uh, you know, a year, it seems like, but but no, that's not true. But I have a report, a very comprehensive report, an investigative report that I want to be, re- I will be releasing on a number of issues, including the, uh, the, the, the Uranium One. And as I explained in my program today, what this is, what, what, uh, what, we're, well, let me finish my thought, the three areas of concern. You've got the Uranium One scandal or criminal cabal. And by the way, uh, oh, I don't have the book, uh, it's, but the book is in my office, but the Venona Secrets, if you, uh, if you read that book, I believe it's called Venona Secrets, um, there is a Canadian connection to the atomic espionage back in the late 40s, early 50s. And if you, <laughs> I was reading the, uh, and I think that's like chapter 10 or 11 in this book, and it's, the book's 500 and some pages. But when you look at the uh, what's taking place with, with the uranium story, it mirrors the espionage that was done in the late 40s and early 50s, for which, by the way, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg got the chair. And you might think that's hyperbole, or it's it's a it's there's a non-equivalence factor there. But I'm going to tell you something: there there is an equivalence factor there. And as a matter of fact, it's even more stunning today, with respect to the Clinton Foundation especially on the personal enrichment side than it was back during the Rosenberg's days. But there's a comparison to be made. Uh, I found that's, I found that absolutely astonishing. So Uranium One and what happened there, uh, that's number one. Number two, of course, is the Clinton email scandal. And that's what I'm referring to here. And then the third thing is the, uh, the Russian collusion, which kind of envelops the Uranium One story. However, the Russian collusion is not Donald Trump, as we have said. It's Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation and the deep state or the shadow government, but it, but it also encompasses Comey, Mueller as well, uh, Rosenstein, 
and a few others. But here's the issue with the Russian collusion. And if you take nothing else from my little uh, monologue here, it's this. It is my sincere belief, based on everything I've researched and investigated, that what we are witnessing today was the Clinton camp or the DNC camp or both attempting to, I'm sorry, in conjunction with the intelligence, American intelligence services, insinuating into the camp, the campaign of Donald Trump, spies, if you will, or operatives in order to set up Donald Trump. That's now, that's going to come out. I truly believe via investigation that will, uh, that will come out. But think about that for a moment. All right, but just real quick, and then I'm going to toss it to you, Joe. The latest on Judicial Watch, 109 pages, heavily redacted, as you stated, during uh, Hillary's tenure as Secretary of State. This goes beyond, uh, this goes beyond any time, any type of carelessness. Mm-hmm. And remember the, the verbiage was changed from gross negligence because that was too close to the law, the statute, the, uh, the uniform statute. So they changed the wording so it didn't appear that Hillary Clinton had violated any of the criminal, U.S. criminal code. But what we're seeing now with respect to the emails, the, these emails, 109 pages, are part of the 72,000 pages of documents that the FBI recovered last year in its investigation in Clinton's use of a private, uh, private server, unsecure private server. If any one of us had, would have done this in that position, we'd be facing jail time. Uh, we, we had a guest on, a member of the armed services who was jailed, uh, did hard time for far less and had no ill intent whatsoever. The pictures? The pictures. Right, right. And, and you, 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 folks, you remember that story, but, but anyway, two heavily redacted emails, more classified confidential, included a November 2011 exchange under the subject, Egyptian MFA on Hamas PLO talks. You talk about some very serious, uh, working matter, working invest, investigative, uh, papers. There's one right there. And also a June 28, 2011 email from Clinton to Huma in which Clinton writes, I have uh, now promised the Kuwaiti Prime Minister three times that I will deliver an address at, at the Oxford Islamic Center. Please be sure that it's on the list for next fall slash next year. And, of course, this goes into Sid Blumenthal, the uh, in Sid Blumenthal, You've got to understand the position, his position about, uh, with Hillary Clinton. And, uh, of course, Sid Blumenthal emailed Hillary Clinton about the situation in Libya on March 9th of 2011 with a subject line, uh, H, serious trouble for living rebels, mm-hmm. Sid. I just really, read that email. Yeah. It's, it's, so all of this, you, when you look at the totality of criminality, how's that? Yep. Uh, this far surpasses anything that, in, in my view, that, that Robert Mueller could ever come up with. And, and so the bottom line here is you've got three working scandals, if that's the word, or three working um, issues, three working investors. And that is what I am looking at very heavily. And, of course, uh, this this to me is untenable. 
in the fact that the Department of Justice is appears to be slow walking it at this point. And I understand. I've said this in my morning show. I understand that a special counsel might not be necessary, but uh, the department, if the Department of Justice does, does its job. But at this point now, it's looking more and more like a special counsel should be assigned to it to encompass all three of these, uh, all three of these uh, topics and subjects. So, Joe, you can go if. Uh, yeah, uh, you know these. Uh, I don't understand why these emails are so heavily redacted either, but they are. And there's aside from what you pointed out about the Libyan rebels are in trouble. I have not seen really anything groundbreaking or. Um, Really, even newsworthy in here? Oh no, 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 no! It's and well, what I just referenced there—the the the Libyan rebels in trouble—that's a very interesting. No, I I think I think the the fact that they're redacted obviously is uh, proof. uh, Proof. They're very heavily redacted, right? Which would which would certainly suggest the um, uh, the nature of the information. So that's you know. Well, kind of switching gears here in this first half hour, I want to cover a few things that have come out today. One, we have the new sexual assault allegations against Senator Al Franken. And we also have some updates on the Judge Roy Moore story. And we covered this in uh, our Hagman Daily Show. Gloria Allred was on Wolf Blitzer yesterday. And she was asked a few questions, which she was very cagey and really didn't answer. One, she was asked if the signature on the yearbook that is the alleged accuser, Beverly Nielsen, um, if that signature was forged. She refused to answer that. She went on to say, you know, she would release the yearbook to a, a Senate Judiciary Committee. And then she was also asked if her client would take a lie detector test. And she said, no, I believe swearing under oath, testifying under oath is basically the same thing. Now, we've learned from Judge Roy Moore's attorney that... Wait a second, say that again? Uh, if Okay, the, in Hagman Report, there's a an article to a newsbuster, uh, a link to a newsbuster's right, article, right. Gloria Allred um, on Wolf Blitzer, and she was asked if the signature was forged that she presented in the yearbook of that Beverly Nielsen, right. and she would not answer. She said, and she was also asked if she would turn the yearbook over for a handwriting sample to experts and she said no she would only turn it over to a senate judiciary committee okay and then she was asked if the her client would take a lie detector test where she said no i believe testifying under oath is uh good enough but well a few things look polygraphs though right they're not a missing report right and and it, it, it contrary to what you see on television a polygraph test, a polygraph examination is only as good as the individual who administers uh, the examination. And, and I, well, I, I just, I, I well, yeah. th- what's important here is the Judge Roy Moore's lawyer came out in a press conference and said that uh, that the accuser was lying. Not only did he uh, see her since her alleged attack or, or whatever that was. He presided over her divorce. And in the signature line that's on the yearbook, the DA apparently is how his court documents are stamped, and then his assistant or secretary would write her initials when she would stamp his signature. Why do I bring all this up on this story that is um, just seemingly never going away? And that's not going to have any winners at the end of the day, but go ahead. Right. 
because I, earlier in the week I, I took a stance of, well, you know, this is up to the voters of Alabama. I really don't care. But the more I look at this, the more I really truly believe the only thing this is is a political attack to try to tip the, the scales of the Senate to not have an overwhelming majority, which is what apparently Roy Moore would have given them if he was votes. elected. He'd right. be the 52nd or 52. And I saw that today, and it really... Uh, it, it, I got back into this uh, Roy Moore story. And from what I can tell, and this is just my opinion, I don't think uh, if people thought he was creepy or uh, people didn't pre- or didn't like that he dated younger women, all this is just a political hit hit job from what I can tell. And, again, this is for the people of Alabama to uh, make their minds about, but I do believe that this is much more political than anything else, and I don't believe that the accusations are true. I don't. Even, I don't believe the woman that came out with Gloria Allred was telling the truth at all. But again, this is just my opinion. But when but, we look at the media response, Campbell, by the way, Pat Campbell did have a, just to interject one thing real quick. Uh, Pat Campbell from KFAQ had a body language expert on his program this morning, and he detected deception. It's on well, right. Pat Cam- Campbell's Twitter feed. He d- did detect the deception in the body language. It, it, and here I am t- saying, you know, not dissing, but but questioning po- uh, polygraphs. I'm talking about body language. It's just something to consider. Go ahead. Yeah, and it's um, there's a few other things. I mean, he, she could have went in the courtroom and had him preside over her divorce case and not make an issue out of it. I don't see what is causing her to cry at this press conference the other day. And on top of that, she did something real weird. She brought a picture of a, a crayon drawing. Yeah, well, I, I saw that it made picture. No sense I, I just to me, didn't it, have the time to, to really get into that. What was it was, that all about? It was, it was just uh, this was something uh, somebody drew of me, or I drew of myself when I was sixteen. That was the only. There was no reason or point to it. I have no idea, but to me, it just seemed completely disingenuous. And if she really is, if that really did happen, the way she said it did. Bringing Gloria Allred in that circus show they called the press conference the other day was probably the worst thing that can happen. But the reason I, today that I find this so important is because we have new claims against Al Franken, a senator <laughs> of Minnesota. And yeah. not only new claims yeah. or allegations, there's a picture of him front and center on Drudge groping a woman who is sleeping. Now the media has come out to downplay yep. and even uh, call this a mock groping. You, one, you have... Uh, an, an article here, victim shaming, MSNBC's hunt, Franken's actions not actually groping. She goes on to, uh, her name is uh, Cassie Hunt. She goes on to make excuses for Franken saying, well, all he did was, uh, you know, try to kiss her when she didn't want to be kissed and it was a mock groping. And we have CNN panel downplays Franken's claims saying, well, he was just a comedian. Um, you know, he wasn't even in office at this time, and it was so long ago, I don't see how this is relevant today. Well, look at what they did with Donald Trump when they tried to bring the allegations against him uh, because of some language he used, which was eight years in the past when he was a, a private citizen. And look at how they are reacting to Judge Roy Moore. If we just take the uh, Beverly Nielsen accusation out as completely non-credible, there is nothing in there where, you know, he's uh, sexually assaulting anybody. It's just allegations of, you know, being, you know, potentially creepy. But here you have a picture of Al Franking actually groping a woman while she's sleeping, and the media is making excuses for him. Now they're going on to talk about it. Will he step down and 
Uh, they say, no, he's not going to step down because the accuser didn't want him to step down or didn't call for it, and he has since come out and apologized. But it's a tale of, of double standards in the media when it comes to these sexual assault allegations. They protect their own, and they throw the other uh, side of the aisle completely under the bus. You know, my it's wife. Not and I, okay, consistent. But but my wife and I were talking about this today, and I I just wonder how low that bar is being set now. And this is, believe me, this what, is for the sexual uh, right. assault claims. And and I'm I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah. It, it, the the act of any kind of sexual assault to me is reprehensible. It's 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 beyond. There are no excuses for that. However, you know, it almost seems and. Please understand when I'm saying this. I'm not downplaying anything, but uh, when you, it almost seems as if a guy can get in trouble just by complimenting. Well, that's a what the latest compliment allegations uh, of a woman. against Roy Moore is. Um, she worked in the mall. This was a new accuser who came out today, and what what did she accuse him of? Of making her feel creepy because he said some things to her a few times. Well, and that wasn't even yeah. overt, uh, nasty things. Yeah, from what okay. she said. Well, what about Joe about Biden? Relationship that, status? I mean, if that's if that's the bar, then Joe Biden should be put right in there. If you've watched any of the snippets <laughs> of video from Biden, but 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 see, here's the thing. Okay, that's well, fake news, according to the New York Times. Right, 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 fake news. Just so so much footage of it, and it's interesting because I, uh, you know, when we talk about this, or when we talk about Uranium One, or we talk about Sean Hannity, it's it's amazing the the, the, the visceral reaction that 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 I get in emails and. And on Twitter, and, and it's just incredible. But but I think I think look, I think uh, this generation, in my view, we, we've we have we are seeing a generation of snowflakes. And again, understand yes. this: I am not in any way uh, someone. If if a man engages in inappropriate sexual behavior against a woman, that, that is that horrible. Right. So, but you have to you have to disclaim this. But if, if you know. Uh, and I certainly, and, and the, people laughed. Who, who was it that said they wouldn't have dinner with, uh, was it Mike Pence or, uh, saying that they wouldn't be in the same room alone with a woman or have dinner alone with Mike a woman? Mike Pence never eats dinner alone right. with a woman. And, and I've told my wife this. I would never, seriously, me, I would never be in, uh, when we go to conferences. There, I would always have someone with me. I would never, first of all, I would never be in a hotel, um, a lot, or in a room or any, that would just never happen. And, and, uh, but I think the bar has been set pretty low, and I think a lot of a lot of people. Um, I've got to say this: I, th- I think a lot of people have become snowflakey in their reaction uh, to certain things. E- e- complimenting a woman um, is, is could, could be considered sexual har- harassment. And I'm not talking about hey, you know, with a slap on the butt. No, no, I'm not talking like that. I'm talking about. Or holding a, even going, holding a door open for a woman is sexist. Really? You know, or helping someone on with their coat could be proclaimed as sexist. But I, I think what we're seeing here is just this de-evolution of, uh, what Greg Jackson sometimes talks about, or often talks about his manners. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, at what point, at what, at what point does, is the line crossed? If you've got a hypersensitive individual, hypersensitive man or woman, it doesn't matter, who is offended by the actions or statements from another person that would ordinarily 
be sensible to a or ordinarily appeal to or be okay with a reasonable and sensible person is it the person who's interpreting and saying no oh, that's creepy or that's offensive is that person or is the man or woman guilty of of engaging in inappropriate conduct i don't think so that's just me and i think that we've we've really slid down a scale here over the years and it's doing damage to the real victims of sexual assault. It's yeah, doing it is. extreme damage to the credibility of the real victims out there. That's where the media is not helping That's right. with what they're doing in this day and age. And <clears throat> Roy Moore had a press conference today. He's not stepping down. He's going to continue his run for Senate, which will bring an interesting situation, especially if he wins. Well, only if he wins, as we see you know, the media continuing to uh, make excuses for Franken and, and put down Judge Roy Moore. But either way, it is a mess. And as you said, the way that the media is handling this is definitely hurting um, other women who come forward and could hurt their, their stories and, and their credibility just by the way the media covers it. Also, there's new allegations against Kevin Spacey today. Apparently 20 more accusers came out. You have an accusation against Sylvester Stallone that... Yeah, I saw that one, too. Him and a bodyguard. Um, wow. Yeah, had inappropriate sexual relations with a 16-year-old. And yesterday we had the guy on, um, Matthew Valentinus, oh, from yes. the movie The Open Secret, detailing yep. the exploitation and sexual abuse of children in Hollywood. Which and is a real problem. Yeah, he's got... I mean, of all the things and names he talked about on our show yesterday... He's got ten times more information than that on his video, and probably much more information that never made it into the film. So I think we're just the tip of the iceberg still with these claims that we're seeing. I, I, I just, you know, the only thing is, and I pray, I, I really pray that that uh, all the truth will come out, and th- that's it. We need the truth. We don't need hyperbole. We don't need. Uh, false accusations. We don't, and, and I've seen some, some really ridiculous accusations. Um, and I'm just not gonna, I'm gonna stop there. But we, you know what? The truth must prevail in these cases. And I pray that the truth, the truth comes out because the bells that are being rung, you cannot unring them. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. Once it's out, it's out. And hey, even if it's not true, the reputation of that person or the, the you know. And did you see there's, Congress has a special fund and paid out over fifteen million dollars yes. to yes. settle abuse, sexual uh, yes. misconduct allegations. We're going to have to talk about well, that. Let's uncover those. Yeah, that's basically admission of guilt. Yeah, it is. And fifteen million dollars of taxpayer money settled over two hundred and sixty complaints. Hey, that's my, a lot of secrecy. If yeah. our tax dollars paid for it, don't aren't we entitled to know? Absolutely, we are. We're going to be right back with John Finch, author of The Father Effect when we return. Welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report. Doug Hagman, Joe Hagman, Father, Son, Investigative Reporting Team. I believe the premier program on the Internet. Help us grow, grow with us. And I say that in humbly and from the bottom of my heart because I do believe that we are, uh, we are reaching people, reaching places, reaching, uh, and discussing topics that 
otherwise are not being talked about or if they are not in the context in which we discuss them. And for those who do support us, thank you. And even if it's just a note on a car I, today, uh, Joe and I were, were, we spent some time going over the, and we do this, we do this just every day pretty much. We go over emails or I'm sorry, mail that we receive as well as emails and, uh, some just wonderful little notes, wonderful letters. And you know what? It's not, a, it's, it's, it's not about money. Money runs the operation, but it's about the larger goal here. And I think this is just my view. And I know Joe shares this view. You know, it's not enough to talk about these issues, but we have to be in a position or position ourselves to be able to, to make changes, positive changes. And I was, uh, and I'm not talking out of school, I guess, because, um, I, th- I don't think Peter Schalke would mind me, uh, saying that, that Peter and I had a pretty lengthy conversation today on the telephone. And we both agreed. If we weren't doing something, what would we, what would we be doing and why, you know, it's, it, it, we, we cannot afford to squander the time we have at, at our ages, especially my age. I'm old. I'm, I'm dust. You know, my son makes fun of me. He's like an old man. You know, we need a walker. I, I'm kidding now, but well, no, I'm not. He, he does make fun of me, and I do cry. I sob uncontrollably in the fetal position. But um, anyway, my safe space. I have to retreat to my safe space. Um, wait a second. Uh, didn't that happen after the election? Safe spaces and chalk and what else? Uh, dolls and balloons yep. or stuffed animals or or was it chalk that was a trigger? That's a trigger. Uh, whatever. I don't know. But, but but see, now our next guest is John Finch, our guest coming up here. All of this, and, and here's here's why we asked him on. John Finch wrote a book. It's called the The Father Effect. Here it is, right here. See. It's the father effect. And, and here's the deal with this. The nuclear family has been destroyed. The, the, the idea of a father in the house, a mother in the, in the same house. And I'm talking about a biological father who is a male on the birth certificate, you know, that's got the plumbing and everything, and a biological female Again, the proper plumbing to go along with the pronoun and the, and the sex, the gender. So you've got the, the nuclear family. And if you look at, at least in my view, if you look at what's going on today, I, and I think if everyone was honest, I think you would agree that the destruction of the nuclear family, which was a tenant, a plank of the communist uh, agenda, written into the congressional record, read into the congressional record back in 1963, to destroy the nuclear family, to go after the morality, to go after the uh, normalcy of marriage, to take that away, I think we've seen that contributing to Issues like the sex scandals, issues like the pedophilia. And I happened to see a picture today, and this doesn't really have anything to do with this guest, but I happened to see a picture today. This is from the Depression. And many history books. And I, I really had to do a double take, and then I had to research to make sure that picture was correct. And yes, yes, it is correct. It was a picture of a woman on, on, on standing on her porch, 
and there were four young children. I don't know how many people have seen this picture. Four young children uh, seated on the porch, on the step of the porch, and she, this woman, is on the porch itself, hiding her face. And next to the, the four children is a sign that said, "Children for sale." The reason I bring this up, it really has nothing to do with this, is the desperation at that time uh, to survive. That, to me, is is symptomatic of the agenda of the of the socialists, of the communists, of the progressive liberal mindset to push people there, if not by bankruptcy, then by the direct assault on our morals and the direct assault against the nuclear family, against what God, the God of the Holy Bible, not the God of the Quran, not the God of the Holy Bible, what God Almighty had ordained as a nuclear family. Again, I'm not a preacher, minister, pastor. I'm a marginal Christian at best um, so this is my view but I think that what we're seeing today with the pedophilia with the which is real you heard as Joe said yesterday uh, an open secret with the allegations of all of this perverted sexual activity if, if, if we're not seeing professional victims we're seeing professional perverts. Seriously. We got them in Congress. They're filled. Joe, how many did you say? Or uh, In Congress? Yeah. There were, over the last 20 years, $15 million paid out on over 260 complaints of sexual misconduct. Okay. All right. So, is that that's a problem. But I also think that extends to, or it stems from... The assault on our morality. Hugh Hefner. Many people celebrate Hefner and, and the Playboy. I, I, I think what Hugh Hefner did to women is just, uh, that, that's akin to war crimes against women. Seriously. He didn't, I mean, he objectified women. He used women. He's no hero to anyone, or shouldn't be, in my view. And, you know, that, 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 uh, that punk, uh, Larry Flint. Uh, but getting, I'm going off again. But this is, to me, this is what the homosexual lobby is, what they, what they want. If you read, um, the, uh, oh my goodness, after the ball, uh, it spells out the agenda, and that's to, uh, that's to make what is, what is heinous and abnormal and perverted to make it make it right to make it normal you, people in drag guys in drag what's up with that all of this combined but see where do we how can we how can we where's the where's this coming from it's the removal of god it's the removal of the 10 commandments it's the ta- not talking about god it's not by accident it's by it's by plan but it also deals with the nuclear family, that the biblical family of one husband, one wife, and children, and respect in the home, and prayer, praying together. And I did something the other. I did something yesterday. Um, 
that, that Ted Brower does. Uh, there was a couple that actually sat down. I, w- I went out to, took my, uh, took my father-in-law who was suffering s- severely from Alzheimer's. It really bad. And I took my wife and father-in-law out to, uh, to breakfast. And, um, the couple seated to my right sat down and, and they prayed over their meal. And I went up to them and, and I paid for their, their, their lunch. It was 10 bucks. I mean, it was nothing. But I'm so thankful to see that come to me that that's rare. But again, that speaks to what our next guest, in part, what our next guest will be talking about, John Finch. If we can get back to that morality, that, that spirituality, that nuclear family and the hope and healing that can take place, then I think we, we, we stand a chance. Otherwise, we don't. Joe, I'm going to toss it to you. I know we kept our guests waiting. Yeah, we have our guest with us. He is the author of The Father Effect. Also, there is a DVD uh, titled The Father Effect, and this is a, a very interesting piece. And John, has uh, he booked this guest a while back and uh, was real excited about this. Our guest is Mr. John Finch. John, welcome to the Hagman Report. Thanks for having me. Greatly appreciate the time. Well, it's good to it's good to have you. Um, the Father Effect, as we as we introduce, this is your book DVD. Let's talk about it, uh, uh, John. Let, let's what what propelled you to write this book? What's the, what's the book about? T- t- tell our audience what the book's about. Sure, the book is about my story of growing up without a dad, and what that looked like for me, kind of just walking through this world lost not knowing what a real man looked like, not knowing what a godly man looked like. And because I didn't have that dad walking alongside me, I bought into everything that the world says you need to be as a man. It's all about power, money, success, sex, all of those things that that the world tells you the definition of a real man is. And so it's really a story of my growing up without a dad and then a message of healing and forgiveness and how God radically changed my life as a result of me finding forgiveness for my father. And I share stories throughout the, the film and the book that are that are intertwined with my stories. We interviewed uh, John Eldridge, the best-selling author of Wild at Heart, Dr. Meg Meeker, and just several ordinary people with just extraordinary stories. And, and all of them had a compelling story to tell about their fathers and, and about the impact that, that their dads had on. Okay. And you have um, your own personal experience. You grew up boys, yep. and your father committed suicide at age 11. How did that... Uh, when you were 11. Yeah. How did how did that affect your life? You know, it, it impacted my life uh, more than I ever imagined because I suffered because my dad chose to take his own life I suffered from abandonment Mm. and there's various ways that that plays out in in all types of people's lives whether it be abandonment from divorce or death or even disinterest just a dad that's not engaged and involved there in the home and so 
um, you know, for 30 years, I just really was angry. And there, you know, I, I was like a lot of men out there nowadays. I was just an angry, bitter, resentful guy. And because of that, I became a social alcoholic and I was trying to use alcohol to cover up this father wound that I had because of the abandonment. And it really just led to a life of destruction and, and started to impact my family, my friendships, you know, everything I was doing. And, and it was, it was impacting my life in every way that I never imagined it would and didn't even know that, that I had this wound at the time and that I had an issue like I did. Hmm. Wow. And a lot of people, uh, in, in today's society, uh, whether it's, uh, the father, you know, abandoning the family or, uh, the children never knowing who the father was, uh, or a number of different reasons, it seems that we have in this society, uh, seeing now more than ever people growing up in fatherless homes. And this is not, you know, just one person's story. I would say that this is, you know, you're talking to probably, 30% of the country. Well, I'm, uh, more than that, yeah, I think. Uh, at least. John, if I can just kind of sneak in here, and this is not scripted, of course, but I don't know whether, whether you heard what I was saying about the nuclear family, the biblical family, you know, one man, one wife, and their children. Um, obviously, to me, what, what we're seeing today with the, uh, with the, Perversity, with the, you know the, the groping allegations, whether it's from being a prof- or whether they're professional victims, um, you know, hypersensitive, and, and boy, I have to every time I say that, I've got to just you know file a disclaimer. I'm not I'm not saying that that's the case here, but it seems like there's um, there's something broken here on on all sides. Isn't kind of the, I mean, your, your book really, I mean, that's what this is about. Um, right? I I mean, it is. It's a, yeah, it's about the, the epidemic and the epidemic of fatherlessness and absent fathers is, is so much bigger than, than most anyone realizes and understands. You know, what, what inspired me to write the book and, and to do the movie initially was, as I began to share my story with others, everyone that I talked to had a story of their own. And there's statistics that we show and talk about in the movie and the book that, that say nine out of ten people have a father wound. You know, because we as fathers are not perfect, we're going to wound our kids. I wounded my kid. You know, I do the best I can <laughs> not to. Uh, I think I let I make less mistakes now today than I did uh, you know, before this transition, if you will. But, you know, because we're, we're not perfect, we're wounding our kids in some way. And so it's about trying to walk in that daily awareness of your impact as a father. And, and I think in today's society, especially, you have all the distractions of work and success and all of these things that, that are even more complicated than they were just five, 10 years ago. So you have a lot of men that are, that are doing all these other things rather than, than choosing to spend time and be engaged and involve fathers in their life. And, and so I think that plays out in so many different ways nowadays. If you look at our social issues, whether it be uh, prison inmates, whether it be teenage pregnancy, whether it be gang affiliation, all of those things are a result of an absent father or fatherlessness, a dad that's not there in the home Showing that kid what it looks like to be a godly man. Okay. 
And, uh, John, mm-hmm. I want to ask you this. You have the book and you have the movie. What is the uh, difference between the two? The book, I'm able to go into a lot greater detail of my story. Uh, there's kind of a backstory, if you will, that I talk about a little in the movie. But um, as I was growing up, my dad really got involved and in, in with some some interesting people and uh, got busted for counterfeiting. And we actually ended up going into witness protection and uh, lived in Fort Knox for about a year. And so there's a lot of a backstory that I'm able to talk about and tell that I wasn't able to, to tell at length in the movie. What was and, that and like? And we give a lot of... In- uh, uh, if you don't, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I can't let Did you see pass. the goats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so you were, well, you were your family was, was in witness protection. We were. I, wow. I was actually only about two years old. And uh, my dad had, had gotten wrapped up uh, with organized crime. And, and my dad, you know, he was dropped off on the streets of New Orleans when he was 16 years old. Uh, his mom had had five or six husbands. And he, you know, he had a really rough life. And, and so she just dropped him off at 16 in New Orleans and said, hey, have a good life. And so he was a man of the streets, if you will. And, and he would get up every morning before school to get scrap metal to go, you know, exchange it for lunch money. I mean, it was one of those very, very uh, difficult life situations. And so as a result of that, he really never came out of that. He was always kind of the wheeler and dealer, the fast Eddie, if you will. And so it just led him into um, some of these other things as an adult. And it's funny because it was only about eight years ago that as I began to, to talk to my mom more and more and ask her questions, that I found all this out. So it was it was quite a shock to me. Matter of fact, I said, okay, is our last name Finch, really? <laughs> <laughs> or, or is there another name? So it was, I don't remember a lot about it, um, but I have heard a lot of stories, and, and I know a lot more about it now than I used to. That's a very interesting, uh, very interesting story. Um and I'd be asking the same question too is my last name really Finch um, and that, that's uh, you know not many people uh, have that kind of background as you do I want to ask you about one of the chapters in your book what is a father wound so a father wound plays itself out in a number of different ways what it is is that something that a or something that a dad did or did not do so, for example, let's take the first one. Uh, maybe a dad never said, I love you, never said, I'm proud of you, never said, I believe in you. You know, those things as a young man and as a young woman, we need those affirmations growing up. If we don't have them, we're going to go look for them somewhere. And with men, it typically plays out, again, like it did with me, with success or money or women or however that might look. And then with, with girls, it plays out so many times with getting into abusive relationships or uh, being very promiscuous. You know, there's some ladies that we interviewed for the film, and, and it was amazing the, the number of those that, that were promiscuous because, you know, if they're not getting that father love, they're going to go look for it somewhere. And in most cases, it's it's probably not going to be the best place for them to be looking for it. From a, something that they did or did not do, Maybe it's those a physically or emotionally absent dad. 
maybe it was something that he always said. You know, a lot of us have heard the term, you're never going to amount to anything. You know, those type of things, speaking that type of curse upon a child has lifelong impact. And and so it's it plays itself out in so many different ways. And most people, when I say absent father, think of physically, but probably one of the most tragic ones is the, the absent father that's emotionally absent, that lives right there in the home but chooses to do other things rather than spend time with his kid. Yeah, and I wanted to get into that a little bit, the difference between abandonment versus, I guess you call it, negligence, because many people who do have fathers probably experience to some degree what you talked about, whether um, it's because, you know, the the dad is is working all the time or uh, has these, you know, different social habits, but you can still develop, from your research, can you still develop these same father issues from a father who's not there versus one who is just emotionally negligent? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was recently asked the question, you know, what's worse? What's the more more difficult to deal with? The dad that's gone, like in my case, who's passed and is dead. You know, I have closure, and I've found forgiveness for him. The dad that's still there and that you've experienced a father wound or are still struggling with that, that, that's a harsher reality and a more difficult path because it's a daily reminder of the wound. And so it's, that's something that I see in so many individuals, both men and women, and, and it's very, very tragic in our society today. I agree. Yeah. I, and I just want to say, for people just tuning in, The Father Effect, John Finch is the author. And as far as I'm concerned, after reading the, this book, which uh, it's it's uh, it's an e- well I don't want to say easy read it's a good read it's it's a rapid uh, it's 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 a it's it's a good read I'll just leave it at that but as you watched the DVD uh, no I did not okay okay but as a as a father and a son it it, it talked to me both it, it, from the position of uh, as a son first and then as a father and it it was not only informative but instructive so I just kind of want to paint that picture and you also Mr. Finch I think succeeded into addressing many of the societal issues related to what Joe asked about what the father wound is and I think that today everything we're seeing today on the social level whether and, and this is my view from some of the most perverse stuff ever that you know we've seen in uh, and forever to um to some of the most cr- criminal behavior is because of the can, can kind of go back to this book in my view or not the book but the case you make sure and i appreciate those kind words i'll tell you the the issues that we're having and it's funny because i see men now and it's very easy for me to recognize the wound in them because I see myself in them the way I used to be. And so it's, you know, this world's only becoming more and more, oh, wow, uh, destructive in the way, the, the place that it's headed because of the acceptance and, and tolerance and, and all of these things that our kids are being taught. Um, you know, instead of standing up for the truth 
and what you firmly believe in, you know, everybody's like, well, as long as it doesn't bother me, it's okay. They can do whatever. And, and so I try to teach my kids the best I can. And I'm not perfect. <laughs> I mess up every day. Um, but I try to teach my kids, you know, you've got to be willing to stand up for what you believe in in your faith when everybody else is sitting down. Because we, as a, as a Christian society, as a group of believers, are the minority. You know, the accepted behavior now is all this craziness of uh, transgenderism and same-sex marriage and all of those things. And so, you know, I look back and catch myself thinking, okay, am I just the old man that when I grew up would say these crazy things about, well, you can't listen to rock music because that's Satan, <laughs> you know, those type of things? Yeah. Or is this reality? Because it, it's just, it seems like we're headed in such, uh, such a bad uh, place, and and you know we're trying to change that for the men that are that are willing to step up and and uh, come alongside us in the journey. Well, that's uh, fantastic. Our guest is John Finch. He is the author of the book The Father Effect, as well as the DVD. And uh, John, where can people go to find the DVD and the book? So the DVD in the book, thefathereffect.com, the DVD is available there. The book is available wherever books are sold, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, uh, just wherever books are sold. We were very, very fortunate to to have a publisher in FaithWords, and and they have distributed pretty much everywhere. Awesome. When we come back, we will be joined, uh, continuing to be joined by John Fitch. We're going to get into uh, a little bit about depression and forgiveness and what are things uh, practical advice for men to be better dads as well as what people who have issues whether it's abandonment or or negligent issues with their parents and their father what they can do to lead better lives we'll be right back with john finch after this short break don't go anywhere on this Thursday edition of the Hagman Report. Author John Finch is our guest. He's the author of a book called The Father Effect. And as he was telling us just during the break, don't let the name fool you. This book is uh, for women also, and they would, could get a lot out of reading this book. It's not just about, or, or for fathers. It's for everybody involved in the whole family. And, and as a gift from the women to the men, too. Um, it's not a subtle hint, but certainly a helpful instructional product. You know, in, in a way, when I read this book, um, I kind of, in the back of my mind, I was wishing I had it like 20 years ago. Seriously. It, it had that, it, it, I, I can't really describe it, but it, it helped me, it informed me. And um, I felt it would probably make me a better father, but more more in tune with things. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's just my my yeah. viewpoint. John, let, let's get into this a little bit. Um, isolation. You, you talk about isolation. Why is why is it that you feel men isolate? 
You know, so many of us, and I've struggled with this myself, uh, becomes kind of a pride issue, if you will. You know, there's this mentality that, that as men, that we have to have all the answers, that we need to kind of be able to figure everything out on our own. You know, we teach kids, especially young boys at a very young age, that they got to suck it up. They can't cry. They got to man up, be a big boy, if you will. And so we're teaching these young boys not to be real, not to show real emotion. And so then we turn around and wonder why we have all these men that don't know how to communicate with their wives. And we have the divorce rates that we do and all of the, the, the struggles and issues that we do. So we've got to change that. And we've got, we got to help fathers understand that it's okay to be real. And when we're not real, when we make mistakes, when we have struggles and issues, which is things that as men we really have a problem sharing with others, because of shame and guilt and unworthiness, we tend to isolate. We tend to go into our man cave or into our office, and we just struggle with that that issue of not being able to be real and authentic. And we've got to change that. We've got to get a group of people around us, a group of men around us that we trust, that we can tell our deepest, darkest secrets to, and that we're not ashamed to, to share the struggles and issues that we're having. And I'll tell you what, when I, when I talk to men's groups and, and men, you know, it's amazing. I start sharing my story about alcoholism and all the things that I've struggled with. And, you know, it's like they go, wow, you know what? I struggle with that too. And so to be in a group of men that you can be real with, you can get advice and counsel from, you know, especially the older men that have been there, done that. It's, it, it's a big step and, and us changing you know, the family dynamic, the church dynamic, everything that we're doing, if we can just help men do that, it'll be such a huge step forward. So so isolation does nothing but lead us into depression and, and tempt us to do pornography and all of these other things that come from it. And so that's really man's worst enemy is isolation. Right. Now, just to be clear, when you, when you were talking about, um, you know, Telling our children it's okay to have feelings. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. You're not, and and folks having read the book and being familiar, you're not, you're not teaching your son to be girlish. Or boy, that's gonna. I'm gonna get emails for saying that. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're not teaching your your sons to be. Um, Effeminate, I suppose, or, or snowflakes. It's being a real man, um, being, uh, I, how, how, help me out here. I'm sinking. Help. Throw me a lifeline. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. We're not saying to, to be weak or to any of those things. What we're saying is it's okay for young boys to show real emotion, to be upset, to cry. It's okay for men to cry. You know, we've got this idea and this myth and this lie that even as men, we can't cry. We can't show emotion and be real. No, I've cried in front of my kids, and I've got no problem with that. There's no shame in that. They see that I'm struggling, and they know that it's okay for them to struggle. So there's there's affirmation even in that. But what I've learned mostly is to just be real with my kids. I've told them stories about my, you know, growing up and the things that I struggled with and, and all of that. And so 
there's a way to walk young men through life and help them be men, be real, bold, courageous uh, men, but yet also allow them to know that they can be real and honest and open with you as a father. Very good advice. If if we can, I want to get into uh, depression because I've talked to, I, I've gone through, you know, periods of depression. I've seen people go through depression, and it is, seems to be a major issue in our society today. Uh, how did depression affect your your struggle with depression affect your ability to be a, a father? You know, depression is is such a deep abyss, if you will. It is, you know, I, I struggled with these, I used to call them ruts. And there were these, every once in a while as I was younger, there would be maybe once every few months, they would last, you know, a few hours. And as I've gotten older, they've gotten to where they lasted a lot longer and become a lot more uh, deeper, if you will. And so I came to understand and accept that, you know, probably I got it from my father from a biological standpoint. And so how it impacted me, we talked about isolation. As a man who suffered from depression, I would isolate a lot, all the time, because of just this deep, dark cloud that was surrounding me. Uh, you know, the only thing that really kept me going in many instances was just my family just my kids and, and my wife, you know, I didn't care about anything else or anyone else. And so it really impacted my ability to be the kind of father and man and husband God called me to be. And, and I still struggle with that today at times. Uh, you know, I've, I've found some medication that works really well for me. And, uh, you know, I've been through a, a few different ones and finally found the right one. And now that I, uh, I have the right medication, I'll tell you what, it is a game changer. It has really changed, uh, changed my life and the relationship I have with my family. But getting to the okay, so, but getting to the root cause of the depression, though, you, and the way I read this now, again, feel free to correct me if, if I'm, if I'm incorrect. The uh, things like depression and things like the uh, isolation are symptoms of the larger problem that you experienced from the, well, the father effect, I suppose. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. Okay. Now, in the depression itself, I think, uh, uh, is also a biological thing. Okay. So I think, you know, some that, that may have a great father, uh, but suffer from some type of depression could still struggle with some of those same things as far as the isolation is concerned. Uh, but just I, isolation is just an issue that we all struggle with, uh, as men because I think, again, it's a pride thing. It's when we don't live up to the expectations of our wives or our kids are what we believe we're supposed to be as men, we have that tendency to isolate. And, and that's something that, that really is just a residual effect of, of not only the father wound, but I think just the men in general struggle with it. Okay. And, and that does make sense. But, but you know, the, the biological or the um, uh, that aside, 
the father wound would exacerbate whatever pre-existing underlying condition might exist. And I understand that. And I understand that, you know, the effect on the family that would have as well as the, you know, yourself. Uh, our, our guest is John Finch, the author of The Father Effect and, of course, the DVD above the, the same name. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I, I haven't been able to watch the DVD, which, uh, the book gets, gets much deeper in detail, but the DVD is, yeah. um, and in the DVD, uh, just to, to show you what's different from the book, they interview a number of people, uh, former exotic dancers, former NFL quarterbacks, former drug addicts, pastors, and talk about the far-reaching impact of growing up without a dad and the influential insights as to how to make these life changes through forgiveness and, and other ways to... Um, make a better life for yourself and be a better person. I want to ask you this, John. This was one of the things we talk about on the show occasionally. Uh, the generational curses. You mentioned uh, generational curses. What do you see these as, and how do they? How have they affected you? You know, the generational curse of uh, understanding that my dad didn't have a father, and most likely his dad didn't have a father, uh, to model what it looked like to be a dad. It's, it's very interesting when I talk with, uh, with individuals, you know, maybe a young man who's struggling with alcoholism. And it's when I ask the question, hey, what's your dad like? You know, does he struggle? Oh, yeah, he struggles with it too. Oh, you know what? And my grandfather was an alcoholic. So, you know, a lot of people don't even, they're not even aware of this generational curse. So, then they don't know how to go change it or heal the, the, the issue. And so as, you know, for me, it was really God connecting the dots and giving me compassion for my father and seeing this incredibly rough life that he grew up with. And really, ultimately, he couldn't give what he didn't have. And, and that's what we have to understand and know. You know, so many of our fathers and even grandfathers this, these things were being passed down from generation to generation, whether it's addiction, whether it's, um, you know, fear, whether it's anger, you know, all of these different things can be passed down. And every day as fathers, we're setting that, we're setting the mood for that normal. You know, one of the, the people we interviewed was Tom Lane. He's a pastor at one of the large churches here. And he talked about, interviewing couple or, or counseling couples and how he would begin to counsel couples and he would ask a young man, okay, tell me about your life. And the young man would say, well, you know, I had a pretty normal life. Mom and dad got divorced. Dad moved down the street and I never much saw him anymore. And he has to go, whoa, hold on a second. That's not normal. But yet so many of us grow up in these homes that you know, there is abuse going on. There's all these other things going on, and we just begin to accept that as normal. And so uh, the generational curse is something that's alive and well, and, and most people are not uh, consciously aware of it. Yeah, and we, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is a Christian show, and one of the things it talks about in the Bible are generational curses. And this comes up when we talk about uh, a number of different issues, and I found it interesting to find that here in the list that uh, you talk about it. I think, though, in the context of 
when you say generational curse, it's almost like a multi-generational model Mm -hmm. that is being followed, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, and we can, uh, on another time, we can get into this more deeply because there's a, a lot there that people need to consider with the generational curses. But for the sake of time, we'll move on. Uh, John, I want to ask you this. What was it that turned your life around that led you to, down the path that you're on today? Um, was it the, was it forgiveness or what was the one thing that, that got you on the right track? It was forgiveness. It was when God showed me forgiveness for my father. Uh, that's the moment that my life radically changed. It's as if, you know, I had these old, cracked, dirty pair of glasses, and God said, okay, I'm going to give you a new set of glasses. You know, everything that I did, the way I looked at life, the way I looked at my family, all of those things just changed because I was no longer carrying this incredible burden of anger. And, and it was really a result of that. That was the catalyst for the radical life change uh, for me was was forgiving my father. And, and I'll tell you, people that we talk to in the book uh, and, and in the film, there are similar stories there. And it, it's, it's so fun to see and hear those stories of how uh, forgiveness plays such a key role in, in helping them ultimately become the, the person that God created them to be. Okay. And how uh, was it that, that uh, you found the forgiveness um, for yourself and for your father. You said that God showed you. How did what what happened? How'd that come about? I was literally in the in the midst of a counseling session. Now this is something, you know, most men will say, Whoa, hold on a second. Counseling? <laughs> Again, that pride issue. We don't want to admit that we need help or that we struggle or have issues, right? And I remember at the time going to the counselor and telling my wife Hey, don't tell anybody I'm going to the counselor um, because I, I, it was that again the pride thing. So it was in the midst of one of these counseling sessions that that the question was presented to me. You know, how can you be so angry, bitter, and resentful towards a man who didn't know how to be a father? Um, and and that was it for me. You know, it was in that question that that I gave my father and myself forgiveness for, for all the anger and bitterness that I'd carried towards my dad for so many years. I mean, I, I referred to him as a coward because of what he did. And I couldn't even say the word dad for the first several sessions of my counseling because of just the anger and the emotional uh, connection there. And so that was ultimately what was it for me. And, and every man's journey is different. Every woman's journey is different. Um, but for me, that, that's how it played out. Okay. Well, interesting. I, I, I don't, uh, I want to hit this before we do run out of time. You have something called, well, you're the founder of something called the Perfect Father Ministries. It's a 501c3 uh, nonprofit, I believe, right? Can you tell, yes. tell us about that and what you do, what that ministry does? I think, I think it's, it's kind of, to me, that, that's important and I think people are going to be interested to hear what you actually do. Sure. So the Perfect Father, uh, ministries is actually a 501c3 and it's kind of the, the big umbrella that our, the father effect falls under. We also have another project called Encouraging Dads where it's just little stories where we're just trying to love and support and encourage fathers 
because there's there's enough stuff out there that are beating dads up, right? Um, so the the father effect and the and the encouraging dads project are really outreaches of the perfect father ministries. And we've made the film and the book. We're coming up with additional resources. We're also doing what we can to get the book and film in uh, in prisons, in pregnancy care centers. We've got a lot of various organizations that are using our short film uh, that's available online for free that are using it in ways to help dads uh, understand the impact that they have. Uh, they're using it at a pregnancy care center in Kentucky that are, are really helping young fathers understand the responsibility and the impact that they have on their kids. Uh, they're using it in men's groups for fathers that have been separated because of maybe a court order from their kids and from their wives. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things that we're trying to do. Essentially, it's about educating, encouraging, and equipping men uh, to become the father they created to be. Okay. John, I want to ask you this. we got about seven minutes left in the interview. Uh, a few things. One, advice for men and women who are struggling with a father wound. First step is they've got to admit they're wounded. You know, the, the people I run into, they don't want to admit that they have an issue. They live in denial. And once I start to talk with them and we really start to get into the, 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 the beef of what it is they're, they're dealing with, whether it's addiction or whatever it might be, you know, you start to peel back the layers and so many times it comes back and it's rooted in a father wound. Um, so you have to be willing to admit that you're wounded, that you need healing, you need forgiveness. And then I am a huge advocate of counseling. I think, you know, my counselor uh, was a guy who loved on me and encouraged me, but he called me out in my BS, you know, when I was bluffing him or saying, you know, whatever it is I was saying. And so uh, we need a guide. We need somebody there, I believe, a professional, if you will, and you know, I call my guy, my my doctor, my counselor, uh, my Aaron to Moses. He was the one that really helped me get through the journey. And then, if you can surround yourself with a group of people uh, that, again, you can be real and honest with, and have these great conversations and get guidance and, and wisdom from, and ultimately, uh, you know, ask God. He'll He'll show you the way, man. He He's there to help, and He longs to help you be the the person that he created you to be. Okay. You know, where, wherever you're at, if you're watching this program, listening to it on Global Star BTR, whatever, and you are a father, you're a mother, you're a son, you're a daughter, whatever, it, there's something in this book for you. And trust me when I tell you that. Um, it, it's that kind of a book. And, and the reviews, I'm not even going to, look, I'm not even going to start there. You, you, you can look at the reviews. Uh, give us your website or the website again uh, for the book and DVD. The, thefathereffect.com. So it's thefathereffect.com. Right. Thank you. Okay. And, uh, yeah, you can, uh, see the, the glowing reviews. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them. I, I gotta ask you this though, because when I read, read this book, uh, this is kind of a weird question. What's your favorite chapter of this book? <laughs> I would probably have to say the one that my wife wrote. Uh, uh okay. you know, it's, it's, 
it's so interesting uh, the number of women that have reached out and, and actually said that was their favorite too because my wife shares very openly and honestly uh, about what she's been able to learn and do and be supportive of uh, knowing that that I've been through what I've been through and that I'm that I've struggled with a father wound and, and all these other things so uh, she she writes very transparently and, and authentically uh, about what that looks like to be a wife of someone who's been wounded and, and has struggled with what I've struggled with and uh, and also my kids were able to to write a little bitty piece and paragraph uh, in that chapter so that was fun they 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 really got a kick out of that I kind of suspected that was going to be the case, I, but I didn't want to speak for you. And, and, and folks, this is a great book, the DVD as well, although I have to admit I did not watch the DVD, but the book is fantastic. And it's, for, first of all, you know, it's, it's, there's a, to me, there's a diagnosis here. Then there's a, a treatment protocol. And I think that this speaks to, to it really, this speaks to the majority of the population. Um, it, it, I, I, honestly, it, and it's informational, it's inspirational, and it, uh, takes us out of that, that and, valley. And it deals with a subject that is not yeah. normally talked about, and a, and a, and a really important, uh, part of, of life is the, the husband and the father role in the household. And as you said, Dad, at the very beginning of this interview, how the nuclear family is just being demolished in, in the public, in the mainstream, and and demonized, and this book shows you the effects of doing that in a society. And one last question, John: What advice would you give to men to become better dads and better husbands? You know, just do the best you can with what you have. Uh, when you get knocked down, when you have you know those days, just keep getting back up. Uh, keep being engaged and involved as best you can on a daily basis. You know, one of the things I've learned, probably the best piece of advice was, um, when I mess up, you know, when I, I lose it, lose my temper or, or do something I shouldn't do with my kid, uh, I go and have honest conversations with them and ask them for forgiveness. And I share, you know, I'm sorry. I blew it. I, I messed up. Will you forgive me? Because what that does is that shows them a couple of different things. It shows them that dad's human. He's not perfect, but he's doing the very best he can. And it also shows them that they don't have to be perfect, that they don't have to strive to, to attain some crazy high level uh, or expectation from their father. So uh, there's a lot there in the book that, that we talk about as far as advice. and but, but mostly it's just being a present engaged father on a daily basis and walking in that awareness of your impact every day. Awesome. And John, we're absolutely going to have you back on. And as my dad said, we have not watched the DVD. I want to ask you, do you have a favorite story or favorite interview from the DVD? Wow. There's, there's several. Uh, I'll tell you this one briefly. We did, we interviewed Dr. Meg Meeker and I've shared this one many times. And as a dad with daughters, this was a real wake-up call for me. But she's a pediatrician by trade, best-selling author. And she said, you know, John, on many occasions I would have young girls come into my office, and they were originally it was 16, then they were 15, then 14, then 13. It just got younger and younger. 
and they were having sex with their boyfriends. It wasn't physically or emotionally pleasurable, but they were having sex with their boyfriend. And so she would go through this exam, and before they left, everything was fine, but before they left, the little girl would say, hey, doctor, can you give me a prescription? And she would say, you know what, you're totally fine. What do you need a prescription for? And the little girl would say, I don't care what it's for, but just at the bottom put cannot have sex. And so what she said is she says, John, these girls were having sex. Again, it wasn't pleasurably, physically or emotionally, but it was the only affection and attention they were getting. They weren't getting that positive fatherly love from a dad. And so this was their permission slip to go say, hey, Johnny, I can't have sex anymore. Wow. So as a, as a, as a dad with three daughters, that was one of the many wow moments that was like, whoa, okay, that's why we're doing the film. That's why we wrote the book because it's these stories that men need to hear and then get practical information on how they can then be that, that father that a daughter needs. Fantastic. You're on Twitter too, right? The father effect is on Twitter. The at the yes, father sir. effect, you got to follow this. This is an evolving story. I yes, mean, it is it, for all of us, and it's an important one. Um, I, I highly recommend this for many reasons. Joe, John, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, folks. Get the book, The Father Effect, on Amazon, and get the DVD titled The Father Effect. Uh, great pair uh, here, and as you said, an evolving story. John Finch, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, my man. You're going to be right back. Network break, breaking news coming up, analysis. Stay tuned. Back to this edition of the Hagman Report. You know, so many things taking place, so many headlines. Uh, we can't get, we, we cannot be distracted. As I opened with, and Joe and I were talking, there, there are so many things going on. You've got, uh, the criminality of, of administration's past and the criminality of the globalist current. And it seems like we are not, uh, we, we are anything but focused. Uh, notice how quickly things like Las Vegas comes and goes. You had the church shooting. It's, it's ancient history. You had the, the event, the horrific event in New York City, just totally off the front pages. We, we were getting reports now that the Vatican is, uh, will be, um, is the target. And I don't know how many people saw this, but it's yeah, the target Christmas? For, for, yeah, Christmas terrorist attack. And, and, of and course, also the West. Yeah, the, the West as well. And then, of course, domestically, you've got the issues. You've got uh, CrowdStrike now, um, essentially cleaning out the DNC computers. Remember, and, and I talked about this on my morning show, and I know Joe and John, and we collectively and individually have addressed this, where the computers during the... Uh, the so-called hacking by the Russians. Well, the FBI were, de- they were denied access. And of course, not CrowdStrike. Uh, it looks like they cleaned up after the Awans cleared the DNC servers and the, and the, uh, or, uh, and, and the Awans had done a lot of things. I'm sorry, DNC servers. The Awans had penetrated the DNC and the Congress people. And of course, there, there's funds. Um, George Webb talks about this. It's interesting. And again, I mentioned George Webb because he's one of the few out there talking about the, um, 
about the Iwan family criminal cabal. Uh, we talk about it, of course. We, you know, we are conducting our own research and investigation parallel to his. And Jerome Corsi, Dr. Jerome Corsi, of course, is in, in talking about this as well. But there's a lot of things that are in motion right now. But before I kick it over to Joe, I just want to remind everyone, when we see documents such as Judicial Watch uh, come out, and we see the the heavy redactions. What does that What does that say about the current and and not just the heavy redactions, but about the? It seems as if there are two tiers of justice: justice for us and justice for the globalists, including but not limited to Hillary Clinton and those other people. Now we're gonna yeah, yeah go ahead talk about that a little bit and go to HagmanReport.com. There we put all the the most important and interesting news stories we see on a daily basis. But there's been some interesting <clears throat> reactions to a few things surrounding Uranium One. <clears throat> Excuse me. One, you have yesterday Shepard Smith on Fox News basically putting up a, a criminal defense for the Uranium One scandal. Get his and, facts wrong, too. Oh, yeah. He got his facts very wrong. And there were... um a number of people who called him out. There was an article on Breitbart today. I didn't post this one. I was going to, and then I changed my mind. Fox News viewers demand Shep Smith be fired after error-filled Uranium One report. Some even said, send him to CNN, and I couldn't agree more. In wake of Fox News anchor Shepard Smith's six-minute fallacy-filled Uranium One fact-check rant on Tuesday, social media is brimming up with enraged Fox viewers calling for the network to dump the longtime host and send him to CNN. You have uh, articles from rawstory.com, Salon, the New York Daily News, uh, saying, you know, how Shepard Smith was awesome in his reporting, but so many Fox News viewers want him gone because they didn't, he didn't report things, uh, as the, the right narrative is on Uranium One, which is not true. It's what the facts say on Uranium One. And the Hagman Report talking about uh, Katie Turr. She is an anchor on MSNBC. And the headline is just as the story reads, Katie Turr gloats, journalist purposely shot down Uranium One stories during the campaign. After conservative media forced the networks and liberal cable news to finally cover the latest FBI revelations over the Clinton Foundation's financial dealings with Russia, they've changed tactics from ignoring the story to dismissing it as bogus. Even MSNBC host Katie Turr bragged on Wednesday that White House, uh, on Wednesday's deadline, White House, that the media were fully aware of the Uranium One story during the campaign, but purposely chose to ignore it. That's about the most honest reporting I've seen from Katie Turr, saying that they purposely ignored the story. But we saw Hillary Clinton's response to this, saying that uh, this would be an abuse of power, that this is an authoritarian regime uh, unfairly targeting her like some dictatorship where political opponents are going to be unfairly and fraudulently investigated. And it is just a joke. It's such a joke to see the excuses that are made for her, the criminal cover-ups that are undertaken by the media and members in, in the world of politics and business for her. Even uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano uh, had issue with it. He wrote a, he penned a great article on Fox News. Judge Andrew Napolitano, the incredible new chapter in the Hillary Clinton Chronicles. And you can go to Hagman Report and read that. 
and he talks about the Justice Department's um, determination whether or not they're going to investigate the Clinton Foundation under the Uranium One deal. And Judge Napolitano in this article makes a great case for an investigation, so that is worth the read there. Now, what are we going to see with this Uranium One scandal? We heard about the sealed indictments last week. There was this big um, speculative push that it's there was a number of Democrats that were going to be arrested or named in those sealed indictments. Which, Forget about that. The key, I, I'm just going to throw this in there, and then, then you continue. The key is the FBI informant. That's the key. There's 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 audio tape. Mm-hmm. There's documents to prove the criminal cabal that existed and was uh, the FBI looked the other way. Go ahead. And I I'm looking for this article I saw on the da- I think it was the Daily Caller today that talks about this FBI informant and even goes further talking about somebody who paid out blackmail money uh in this uranium one deal wants it back. Wants over $700,000 in blackmail money back. I'm going to have to to find that stories. And then also, in a very underreported story today, you had the House passes tax reform. But interestingly enough, you have a number of people coming out against it. And again, this goes back to Judge Ray Moore to an extent, at least that the position his Senate seat from Alabama would hold in the Senate, giving them the 52-vote majority. But you have... uh the NFL coming out against this tax bill that was passed in the House saying that it is going to hurt their revenue because they're not going to be able to use taxpayer bonds to pay for stadiums. And their argument is, well, it creates jobs. So, you know, we're going to be against this tax tax plan, which is one of the uh, the second time that this year that the NFL is really sticking their neck out into the world of politics. And most of the fan base of the NFL is really getting sick and tired of what they're doing. But the tax plan being passed in the House, is that good news? I haven't went over the the legislation. I'm hearing two completely different stories out of Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Some Republicans are saying this is bad, it's not going to help anything, it's going to hurt worse, and then throwing the Obamacare mandate out the window in that bill. They, uh, the, The politicians that are commenting on it say that they don't believe it'll get through the Senate the tax bill won't get through the Senate because they tried to slip that Obamacare provision into the bill. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward what happens with that. And then, as I said about the NFL, you have them really sticking their neck out. And I wanted to bring it up because the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, makes $31 million a year. And he has shown absolutely no leadership when dealing with these protests. And I want to ask the listeners out there, how many people who are employed in a, a corporation, in a company, can use their employer's time or time on the job to protest things they don't like. Because we have to remember that in the NFL, the football players who are conducting these protests are employees of the NFL. They don't only represent the team that they play for, they represent the NFL. So you, really, you couldn't get away with that anywhere else. And they're talking about this as um, you know free speech that they're allowing to happen which is fine, but if you consider it in the context of employer-employee relationships, it takes on a new meaning. But the Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, uh, makes $31 million a year. He wants a $20 million a year raise, access to a private jet for the rest of his life, and free health care for him and his family for the rest of his life. For somebody who who has, has driven the NFL uh, to its worst numbers in years, 
demanding that seems pretty ridiculous. It's not that we're going to sit here and continue to talk about the NFL, but it is relevant as they continue, again, to stick their nose into the world of politics. And usually you're on the wrong side, or at least on the wrong side of what the base of their viewers really um, really want. And they're going to continue to see their, their numbers and their ratings hurt. I just saw a... Uh, I don't know, statistics for the last week in the NFL and numbers were down, you know, over 30% in, in many of these games. So they're going to probably be running into revenue crises and more advertisers pulling back as that whole uh, circus show is just getting out of hand. But you know what, Joe? Uh, and I got an email on this just now, and I apologize. Uh, I, apparently I, I failed to mention the identity of, of the FBI informant. Yeah, I don't just, think he did. Well, William D. Campbell, he's been identified. In fact, he's self-identified. And Is also, that today? Uh, within the last, I think, 24 hours. I'm okay. not sure. I, I thought for, I thought I, my apologies if I didn't. And Campbell was a, um, uh, Campbell was a lobbyist, uh, for, uh, he was a former lobbyist for the, for a Russian company, William Campbell. He had talked to Reuters earlier, I guess today or maybe late last night, but uh, he's got documents and, and recordings. So William D. Campbell, and it's interesting to, to watch these various news agencies attempt to downplay or assail his, uh, the contents of what the, the, the damaging, uh, documents that he's got to the extent where, um, he, he came out and said, look, I, I worked as an informant for the United States Department of Justice for several years. I've got the goods that will prove this paid him. Mm-hmm. It's big news. Will and, it be and covered up? Well, and I, and I think to, to a large extent it, it already has been. The question is how much of this will come out. So it's important to, to realize that, uh, that, okay, I just want to make sure I've got this here. Uh, that I state that, that he's got recordings, um, because, and as a matter of fact, yeah, the informant made secret recorder, recordings, gathered records, and intercepted emails dating back to 2009 that showed that Russia, or Russian officials had compromised an uranium trucking firm with bribes and kickbacks. This all under the nose of Barack Obama knowing about this under the nose of Cepheus and Shep Smith. That's how you pronounce it, Cepheus. Okay. The committee, uh, well, anyway. Um, so uh, there's a lot of meat again on this bone, but, uh, uh, we're going to watch carefully with respect to this. And of course, Jeff Sessions was asked whether a special counsel should be appointed here. And uh, he's feeling that this falls within the uh, jurisdiction or the Justice Department will be fine. Coming up at the top of the hour will be Joel Richardson. Before we move on with the program, like I mentioned earlier, portion of the nice program brought to you by Omaha Steaks. You know, every... Well, what did my wife fix you, Joe, and, and Eric the Tech? What, what, what did, uh, what did you have when you went to, went to my home today? You, I had a beautiful ribeye from Omaha Steaks. It was delicious. And I gotta tell you, what a great gift. If you're looking for the perfect gift for someone who has it all, perhaps, and you know the holidays are fast approaching. So, you, think about this. 
Omaha Steaks. Let me tell you about Omaha Steaks and how for just forty nine ninety nine you can get my family gift back when you go to omahasteaks.com and enter our code HH in the search bar. It's 75% off. You cannot beat this. And you know what? You just go shopping there because Omaha Steaks, they've got over 500 gourmet gift ideas. They've got great steak. They've got the most flavorful, tender-aged beef. We love it. They've got seafood, poultry, pork, veal, lamb. It's incredible. And by the way, their cuts of beef, beef are aged for 21 days to unlock the full flavors of the cuts. And, and they're hand-trimmed, and you could tell, vacuum-packed. I wonder if they massage the cows. Seriously, they're that good. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving to our listeners, our viewers, an exclusive exclusive savings. Listen to everything that you will get for less than $50. Listen to this pack. Two filet mignons. Two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, the most succulent chicken breasts you'll ever have, four burgers, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha steak seasoning packet, which really, wow, it's great, four kielbasa sausages, and with this order, you'll get an additional four kielbasa sausages free. You cannot beat this deal. That's a lot of food for under $50. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter our code HH in the search bar, and get a 75% savings. It's the gift guaranteed to be a hit. So I just happened to happen to think of that and happen to think, hey, my wife fixed you dinner tonight. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, before uh, before work. How's that for a perk, huh? While we're uh, yeah. doing announcements here, don't forget tomorrow, yes. Paul McGuire's Paradise Mountain Church prayer meeting is at 7 p.m. Go to paulmcguire.us to register. You can register for free. You uh, you can go to the uh, prayer meeting for free. You just make sure you, that you register, and you do that again on paulmcguire.us. It's in. Uh, it's at the Garland. I'm gonna have to pull this up. I can't ever remember. We're just going to the Garland Paul Hotel. Yeah, and yeah, it's right there on paulmcguire.us. And he has these prayer meetings uh, pretty frequently. And we've had a lot of listeners attend with always never anything bad to say about the, the prayer meetings. I absolutely love them. And uh, John, actually, our producer, has been to quite a few, and he said that they were fantastic and all made up of, of Hagman Report listeners. So, again, paulmcguire.us is the website. Go there to register for the conference, and you can do that for free. And this is at the Garland Hotel in North Hollywood, California. On November seventeenth, so if you're going to go, make sure you register. Absolutely, you know. Again, nine minutes. You, where where do we go from here? Oh man, I don't know. There's really nothing happening out there. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I don't even want to touch Al Franken. Well, you know, folks, well, you know I, what what makes me so angry about that is the. Again, what I said about the, the yeah. double standards in the media. Yeah. On on Drudge, there's a number of headlines on the right-hand side. Second woman says, Franken, aggressive, harassing phone calls. MSNBC, he was not actually groping her. Um, and the, the CNN is making these excuses saying, oh, it was a mock groping and, uh, you know, it was an unwanted kiss and he apologized, so it's okay. And, I mean, it's <laughs> it's infuriating. 
Well, <laughs> to say the least. Valerie Jarrett even kind of turned on Al Franken. Um, and in fact, here's what she tweeted out. Just imagine your mom, spouse, sister, or daughter in this photo. And, of course, that photo of Al Franken, you know, turning the come in Radio Tokyo. Uh, never mind uh, the, the, the picture. And not so funny now, is it, writes Valerie Jarrett. So it's interesting to, to see how this is playing out. And, and again, I think, uh, I think the morality here, the self-destruction that we're witnessing is, um, is beyond the pale. And, you know, isn't it, isn't it something when we started out or when we ended last year, we were talking about things like Pedigate and Pizzagate and the perversion. The, the greater topic of perversion and people saying that's fake news. Mm-hmm. And we had last night, we had, uh, an open secret, the man from the open secret behind the open secret, uh, documentary come on. Matthew Valentine. Ain't so fake now, is it? And, uh, to, to show the, the perversion, the depths of perversion. And when he, when he talked about the, the initiations, you know, kind of like the Monty oh, yeah, S- yeah. initiations. That just blew my mind. Not that Although this I, is, I knew it, but. Not that this is, he was saying that this is not some, you know, obscure cult or, 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 uh, you know, small percentage of Hollywood elites. It's basically like a gang initiation, rite of passage. And I've read other stories just even today online where it was talked about, just like he said, that it was uh, something that was cheered on. Sexual assaults, rapes of uh, women was cheered on in in these circles. Yeah. And when you think of about children, that, yes, it Just, is. Uh, it's horrifying. And you know we we've been talking about it for over a year now since what last October when when the emails broke and we saw all the crazy things that were in John Podesta's emails and. The Comet Ping Pong Instagram accounts with all those pictures, suggestive pictures of young kids and the Podesta's artwork and on and on and on. And here we are. And just as you said, everything seems to be coming to the light. There is a lot of exposure happening right now. And it's not limited to the world of movies and Hollywood. It is in the political arena. It is in the world of media. The top guy at NPR had to step down over sexual misconduct allegations today, and he's just one of many. The one of the first uh, reporter to publish the Trump dossier at Mother Jones is under a lot of scrutiny for for sexual harassment, misconduct allegations as well. That's and yeah. we're only seeing you know unless you're really looking for the stories, you're only seeing maybe ten percent on. Uh, mainstream news and even places like the Drudge Report of what is coming out against many people in Hollywood. There is a whole nother 90 to 95% of stories out there that are not being looked at, that are not being covered by the mainstream media, either because there's not the right name recognition or whatever it is. But for every story you see, there's probably eight or nine more stories on, you know, circulating in, in different magazines and internet sites that have not come really to the forefront of the news and the, the media's attention. So well, it's 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 just it's amazing, Joe, to to watch all of this unfold in the manner it is, and it's every every hour there's something new, there's something equally perverse, more perverse. There's yet another person, but as you had indicated, I'm waiting for them to just um, just come out with the 
the the names, the identities of the congressmen who yeah. were involved in the lawsuits, the well, settlements. Did you hear this one? Fox News reported that four underage girls had come out and accused Michael Moore of sexual harassment. Um, there are stories like this with other celebrities, musicians that, and this came out on November seventh. I didn't see that anywhere in the in the news media. And you said even with um, a lot of the non-disclosures agreements signed and the uh, settlements that were reached, you still think there is the possibility for lawsuits to uh, make their way to the forefront? Oh, heck yes. Yeah, okay. I, I strongly believe that. Regardless, you know, yeah, I, I truly I truly do believe that. And, and, you know, how far have we come? Remember, and I was just trying to remember if this was the case. Um, yeah, it was. Remember Wilbur Mills. Does that name ring a bell to anyone? No. Okay. I guess you have to be as old as me. All right, because... Um, he, he was an, uh, he was a Democrat who, he was the, the, uh, he was in, uh, House of Representatives. And, uh, he was caught in the Washington Tidal Basin with Fanny Fox. This is on October 9th of 1974. And there was outrage over this. Okay, here's, uh, just so I'm accurate on this, and, and I want to be, I don't like to read on air, but let me just, it was, uh, just to kind of give you kind of a, a context for, for the difference between then and now. And hey, this was, look, I remember this. So it's not that long ago. It was on 2 a.m. On October 9th of 1974, when police stopped a car in Washington, D.C. Inside the car, of course, was Wilbur Mills, the powerful Arkansas congressman. What's in the water in Arkansas? Anyway, uh, from, uh, anyway, and he was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, by no means a, a lightweight in Washington. He was drunk on his butt, and, um, his face was injured. Now, another passenger, there is an Argentine, Argentinian stripper who performed under the stage name Fanny Fox um, got out of the car and jumped in the nearby tidal basin. Let's see, yeah, that's how it went down. He, uh, anyway, there was a scandal because of that. Yeah, his face was, did I say his face was bruised? But anyway, it was. But there was a fight, and a big brouhaha back in 1974. Think about that, and, and people might say, well, you know, that's, so what? There was no sexual harassment. There was, but there was sexual, um, there was a lot of, dare I say perversity, or it certainly was not received well. And I remember my parents and, and my family looking at it and saying, wow, man, a politician, can you believe a congressman would actually behave this way? Now, now look where we're at. And I, and I say, I bring this up only, from for context and comparison, that's all, uh, and reaction to uh, today, what happened fifty years ago versus, or what it would be forty some years ago versus uh, today. Okay. So anyway, we got about a minute left. I want to just bring our your attention to this. There's two uh, Baltimore and Chicago. I've been dealing with lots of gun violence for a while now, and Chicago has reached its 602nd homicide of the year yesterday when three people were shot and then in Baltimore in a place that's just been probably one of the worst areas per capita dealing with violence in a long time in our history 
you had a homicide detective investigating a homicide shot in the head yesterday in Baltimore, Ugh. leaving neighborhoods to still under a shelter-in-place order. And, you know, these are supposed to be gun-free zones. These are supposed to be, you know, the 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 liberal gun control meccas of the United States showcasing how gun control in their cities is so effective at reducing violent crime. But obviously that isn't the case. Baltimore has the highest homicide rates per capita of anywhere in the country, and Chicago has reached 600 homicides for the second time in 10 years, and it looks like they're going to surpass over 700 in the year if the trend keeps going, which is absolutely ridiculous. How do we turn this around? How does the cities and the states turn this around? That's More gun laws, we're, right? <laughs> yeah. More gun laws. Something we're looking they're into. Working. So that's interesting. Hey, so, wait a second. Chelsea Clinton and and the uh, Burka Barbie. Chelsea Clinton and Burka Barbie. Yeah. You, got, you guys got to, we're not going to talk about it, but you guys got to search that out on the Internet. We'll be right back with Joel Richardson after this. Don't go anywhere. Final hour on this Thursday edition of the Hagman Report. Joel Richardson is going to be our guest coming up in just a few moments. His website is joelstrumpet.com. He's going to be talking about his books, Mystery Babylon, Saudi Arabia, and a number of other things. And before we bring him on, we have a few interesting updates on Saudi Arabia. One, the anti-corruption sweeps are over, and the uh, king is stepping down, and he is handing over power to his son, Mohammed ben uh, Solomon, who Standeo has been pointing out Major for a Sandeo. long time on our show, is the um, a potential candidate, as Stan says, for the Antichrist, to other things that are prophetic in nature happening in Saudi Arabia. So what is happening with this crackdown? Saudi offer in corruption crackdown, cough up the cash and go home. The government is demanding 70% of the uh, rich detainees' wealth in return for their freedom, according to reports. Authorities in Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia are offering businessmen and members of the royal family detained on allegations of corruption an opportunity to pay for their freedom, according to media reports. Around 200 princes, ministers, senior military officials, and multi-businessmen have been held in five-star hotels across the country since last week. And they are now saying that uh, if the settlement is agreed, hundreds of billions of dollars would be diverted into the country's depleted coffers. Saudi Arabia recorded a budget deficit of $79 billion last year, and low oil prices have pushed the country into a recession. So now we are seeing the um, Mohammed bin Solomon turning around and saying, turn over 70% of your wealth and you can have your freedom. And as I said, next week, the Saudi king is going to step down and hand over the power to his 32-year-old son. And this is uh, King Solomon of Saudi Arabia is planning to step down next week and naming his son Prince Mohammed bin Solomon as his successor. They added King Solomon will play a role of the Queen of England. He will only keep the title custodian of the holy shrines. So the the son Mohammed bin Solomon is going to take the all the power in Saudi Arabia, and this is what uh, many Stan and many others, including Joel, have been talking about these changes in wow. Saudi Arabia. There's also an interesting uh, article on Hagman Report that's worth a note. It was from RT. It details the a London economist 
who is saying that Saudi Arabia is looking to ditch the petrodollar, which See, would have huge implications for not only the U.S., yeah. but the, the rest of the world. That's what you were saying during during our time in show prep. Joe had done a lot of research on this. And, and that's one thing I've got to give him a lot of credit for. He does a lot of research. So, um, yeah, we, we can get the scoop from Joel on that. But, yeah, so that would be the death knell of the dollar. Yeah, it would be. And on this article... It says that the United States and Saudi Arabia are so interdependent that a rift between them would mean disaster for the petrodollar system and the greenback's reserve currency status, warns economist Brandon Smith. And he goes on to state that he believes the next phase of the global economic reset will begin in part with the breaking of the petrodollar dominance, which would have huge implications for the U.S. and obviously the U.S. economy. And that is a very real possibility. We've talked about what would happen if the world, if the U.S. lost the world reserve currency status and how much that would drive prices up here in the oh. U.S. from everything from milk to bread to gas to every and anything you buy. The price would increase over double instantly. And that would just be the beginning uh, on everything it's that we buy. Yeah. So. And, and remember the gas lines of 70, what, 73, 74, the mm-hmm. oil embargo and such. It's an amazing. Uh, amazing thing. I, I want to inject a little humor right now. We've had Craig Sawyer on. Of course, he's the Navy SEAL sniper trainer, uh, defender of the defenseless federal law enforcement officer, Craig Sawyer, the sawman, right? Um, I, I, I subscribe to his Twitter feed, all right? Oh, just for a little humor. Um, He's, he posted a picture. Uh, or he, he, I'm just going to read you his his tweet. Yeah. Are you ready for this? Yep. Okay. Sit down, because this is funny. Uh, hey, Al Franken, you want to try groping Leanne Tweeden now, Mr. Pervy, Predator? Go ahead. I dare you. Go ahead. And there's a picture underneath. He's uh, standing next to, because he's a firearms instructor as well, he's standing next to uh, Leanne and uh, they're shooting an AK or an AR, AR-15. Uh, looks pretty formidable. She's got the. Uh, they're they're both in the red, uh, the uh, sawmen's stuff. But anyway, the bottom line is she's got the ear, ear protection on, and he's holding an AR-15 next to her, showing her how to shoot. So um, I just I just you know what I just found that a little bit. Humorous. Am I off? Am uh, I titched or what? No, no. I need the visual to share. The, yeah, I guess it it, it doesn't fly well without the image. It, it just struck me as kind of humorous. If you know Craig Sawyer, the Sawman, and you know his Navy SEAL background, and you know that, yeah. If um, I certainly, you know, if, and there's there's more to this story than just the picture yes. of Al Franken groping. There's a the the reporter who was the victim of this, goes on to detail um, some unwanted kisses and other things. If you read the article, it's rehearse, more than just rehearse. Yeah. yeah. And I heard her, she was on Sean Hannity, to, Sean Hannity today. Our guest with us is Joel Richardson. His website is joelstrumpet.com. And, Joel, it's great to have you back. Okay, thanks. All right. Joel, it's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I apologize I didn't have my uh, camera turned on. Oh, no worries, man. It's good to see you. We, so you're going to have to walk us through what in the world is going on here and what we can expect with respect to Saudi Arabia. Joe did a great job. I, I got. I have to give my 
uh, I have to I have to say this. I admire his, Joe's research and his analysis on Saudi Arabia, but we're looking to you to walk us through what's going on and how this all fits in contextually. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, I look at um, even the way that American foreign policy relates to uh, the Middle East, and it just seems like we're continually five, ten years behind. Um, essentially what's happening right now just in the larger Middle East is really the same thing that's happening throughout the world. We're seeing the balkanization uh, of the entire planet. You know, we're seeing the breakdown along uh, religious, political, ethnic lines. Um, we're seeing it here in our own country. I mean, we're seeing the division and so forth. But there in the Middle East, the primary um, division that has defined the direction that things are heading, obviously, with the American uh, relative vacuum that we've created as we pulled out over the past few years uh, is this, and really since the Arab Spring, we're seeing the um, we're seeing the Middle East leave behind Arab nationalism. Now, Arab nationalism was sort of the uh, the approach or the ideology that the West was trying to use, and as well as all these various third-rate autocrats to try to keep their little fiefdoms together. So let's say we're looking at Iraq, you know, we've got Sunnis, we've got Shia, we've got Turkmen, we've got Kurds, we've got Yazidis, we've got Christians, we've got all these different people. And so it was under the banner of Arab nationalism, you know, or again, Iraqi nationalism, that they would try to unify all these different groups, and usually Israel was held up as the common enemy. And so by holding up Israel as the common enemy, they thought they could keep everybody together. Well, now that that's the era of Arab nationalism is gone. And what we're seeing emerge is really simply stated a massive Sunni Shia conflict. And we're sort of returning to the conflict that defined the Islamic world, even in the early years after Muhammad died and his successors took over the various caliphates uh, spread out of Arabia up into Iraq and Syria. And so we're returning to a primitive time. And really, there is absolutely no way that we're going to be able to go forward in the years ahead without seeing this conflict increase. And uh, inevitably, this sort of brewing conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran is eventually this uh, this bubble is eventually going to burst. And um, as you guys are beginning to discuss how that's going to affect the American dollar, how that's going to affect the world economy, um, I don't see any way that it it can't essentially seek the globe sink the global economy. Now, obviously, we're going to do everything we can to try to slow that down and to see this this emerging war uh, unfold largely through proxies. But if it turns to a full-blown war, uh, analysts have already said that oil could easily hit $300 a barrel and, yeah. um, and it would sink the entire global economy. And that's crazy to think about. And I definitely want to get into the potential conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran and all the nations that will be affected around it and the economy that will be affected around it. But first I want to get into what we're seeing, uh, some of the latest announcements from Saudi Arabia. One, we have the um, Prince Mohammed bin Salman saying to the people that were caught up in the anti-corruption sweeps, pay 70% of your wealth for your freedom. And we have this uh, consolidation as the king is saying he's going to step down and his son um, Mohammed bin Salman is going to uh, take control of the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Is the uh, is Mohammed bin Salman really trying to reform the the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? 
Yeah, and this is sort of what um, all of the popular media is saying, is that this guy's a great reformer, uh, and the reason that he arrested all these different um, Saudi princes and princelings and so forth is because he's a reformer, and these guys are all corrupt, and it's uh, it's a it's an issue of graft and so forth. Look, um, what's unfolding in Saudi Arabia is no different um, than any number of scenes from Goodfellas uh, or Casino or Godfather. You know, the scene when Joe Pesci gets killed in Casino or the scene when Joe Pesci gets killed in Goodfellas. <laughs> you know, essentially this is one part of a crime family that has just effectively beheaded um, another part of a crime family. Saudi Arabia, in terms of their finances, is probably the most opaque nation in the world. Virtually all of the money that comes into Saudi Arabia, probably half of it disappears through bribes. And, um, you know, the, the princelings are multiplying. You know, a few generations back, you only had so many princes. Well, now this royal family's exploding. And there's just simply not enough money for, for, to go around various divisions within the family. So you have one crime family that has just taken out another crime family. Now, um, is the crown prince who will be the king here just in probably, a, I think, it, within the next couple of weeks, is he going to try to actually reform things? I think he's going to put on a facade of reform, um, and that is in order that he can um, close in his ties with the United States as well as amazingly with Israel. Um, because of this tension with Iran, they are forced now to get deeper in bed, if you will, um, with Israel and the United States. And um, so, of course, they put they have to put on this veneer of moderation or reform and so forth. And so he's an intelligent guy for being 32 years old. Um, but the notion that he's a genuine reformer is uh, is a joke. Yeah. You know, I'm very skeptical of of saying he's a reformer, obviously. There is major changes happening in Saudi Arabia, but to what extent or for for what agenda would that is yet to be to be fully seen and you just mentioned the the uh, connections between Saudi Arabia and israel we 've seen headlines this week that Trump is renewing uh, Middle East peace negotiations between uh, Israel and some other countries in the Middle East. Do you expect to see some kind of uh, attempt at a peace deal with Israel? Uh, in this presidency? Yeah, there'll definitely be an attempt. Um, Donald Trump is known as the deal maker, and there's no way that he's going to uh, let the opportunity to be the greatest deal maker in history ba- uh, bypass him to have that legacy. Um, as you know, unfortunately, he sort of um, put this onto the lap of his son in law, uh, Jared Kirshner, and, um, you know, what could go wrong. Um, in fact, it was interesting. Um, I, I want to say it was the Crown Prince Ben Salman that just said he is going to actually push Israel um, and and push the uh, Palestinian Authority to uh, negotiate with Israel with regard to a, a peace. Look, you know, the the Bible is very clear that this issue of um, this emerging peace deal. You know, when the when the Hebrews left the Promised Land and they went, they were entering. They, when they left um, Egypt and they were entering the Promised Land, one of the primary commandments that God made through Moses is He said, "When you enter into the land, don't enter into alliances, treaties, marriages, covenants with the people. If you do, it'll be a snare unto you, and you'll they'll lead you into worshiping false gods. It will be the death of you." 
And so this command of God not to enter into covenants, marriages with pagans, uh, it remains today. And yet you look at modern-day Israel, they repeatedly enter into these agreements, these covenants, these treaties with the surrounding Muslim peoples every time it results in another chunk um, of Israel being cut off, another you know segment of the population being killed. And it's always a concession on Israel's side. Um, Palestinians are the ones that always stand to gain from it. And, you know, within Islamic theology, based on the life of Muhammad, um, it says that you enter into covenants for the purposes of growing in strength. Um, it's always to defeat your enemy. So the very idea that the Palestinians ever have any interest in genuine peace is a joke. And the very idea that... Um, secular or religious Jews or anyone for that matter would actually believe that the peace process or any peace process in Israel has any legitimacy or potential to produce peace is um, is entering into what the Bible calls a covenant with death that's very very interesting and and uh, as we were talking about Standeo and what he talks about uh, as far as Saudi Arabia and uh, Prince Mohammed soon to be King Mohammed and these events, he's been keeping his eye on this for a long time, and I know you have as well, and he brings a, a number of interesting uh, theories to the show, and one of them that he just talked about this week was the possibility of a renew, these renewed peace talks, uh, depending on, on what happens with this Saudi Arabia potential conflict with Iran, and he also said about that conflict that it is not a matter of if but when, that it is an inevitable conflict, and we'll, I want to get into that a little bit uh, as the show progresses. Our guest is Joel Richardson. His website is joelstrumpet.com. Make sure you go there and check out uh, the store that he's got. He's got great bundles on his books from the Antichrist, Turkey, and the coming caliphate to the uh, Gog and Magog bundle and so much more there. You can get the, check out all the books and the DVDs on his website, joelstrumpet.com. Um, in here, you, on the, on the show notes here, I was not familiar with the Prime Minister of, of Lebanon resigning. What does this have to do with Saudi Arabia? Yeah, this is the question that uh, everyone's asking. So a few weeks ago, uh, Prime Minister of Lebanon actually flew to Saudi Arabia, and then when he was there, he announced his resignation uh, as the Prime Minister. So um, just a little bit of background. His father had previously been the Prime Minister of Lebanon and was assassinated by Hezbollah. So Lebanon, just like I mentioned earlier, just like Iraq, just like so many of these Middle Eastern countries, is a nation that's divided among many different ethnic, religious uh, people groups. Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy uh, group, has moved in over the past few uh, decades and largely taken over, again, to the point where they would even assassinate um, the Prime Minister. Well, Hariri, the prime minister that just resigned, he was clearly Saudi Arabia's man inside. And um, it's always been suspected that that was the case. Of course, you know, Saudi Arabia, just like Iran, works through proxies, works through puppets. And so they had their puppet in the government. He was representing the Sunnis, again, which Saudi Arabia is there in the government uh, of Lebanon. Um, but when it became clear that... Um, that Hezbollah was probably going to assassinate him. He essentially fled to his um, his parents' house, if you will, in Saudi Arabia, and he announced his resignation. And that's where he's been staying since. Um, he's actually been staying in Saudi Arabia, and he's been making excuses. 
um, for why he hasn't returned to Lebanon. But it really proved what everyone had always suspected, which was that he was Saudi Arabia's puppet in in Lebanon. And so right now, Saudi Arabia is essentially engaging in their war with uh, Iran in Lebanon. So rather than engaging Iran directly, they are engaging them through Iran's proxies in Lebanon. And this is sort of the beachhead, if you will, um, or this is the the beginning uh, of this conflict. It's It's going to spread next to Lebanon. Of course, you know, Iran has already brought the war to Saudi Arabia in Yemen, right on their southern border. Um, but yeah. now the Saudis want to bring it to Lebanon. And, and Yemen, um, and I don't fully understand all the different dynamics of what nation is a proxy for, for which side. But I've heard that uh, we've seen in part of this anti-corruption sweep the same time period that there was a missile, attempted missile launch at Saudi Arabia by uh, some forces in, in Yemen. Is 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 there a proxy war ongoing between Saudi Arabia and Iran that, and it has something to do with Yemen? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so you have to understand the Iranians are the most calculating, patient, sophisticated uh, group in the whole Middle East. I mean, they play the long game and all, all they have to do is make one step forward. They're, they're never going to do anything brash and, um, and provocative to the point where someone is actually going to engage in full-scale war. They're always going to hold back, but they're going to move forward little by little by little, and they've been very successful in doing that, but they always function through proxies. So Iran has, I mean, think about this. Tehran, Iran, right now, they control Iraq. They control from Baghdad south, all of the Shia-majority nation of Iraq. They control Baghdad. They control Beirut. They control Lebanon largely through Hezbollah. They control Syria through Bashar Assad. So these are all their proxies. The government in Iraq uh, under Abadi that is Shia-controlled, that is an Iranian proxy. Okay, Iran controls Iraq. Iran controls Lebanon. Iran controls Syria. Three foreign capitals right now are under the control of uh, Iran, not to mention Yemen. And so in Yemen, you have these Shia um, group known as the Houthis. They call them the Houthi rebels. And, uh, and and again, just to understand the Arabian Peninsula, you've got roughly uh, 30 million in Saudi Arabia. Again, much of them living off of welfare. A third of the people in Saudi Arabia are essentially slaves, um, their workers, so to speak, come from all over the world, come from the Philippines, come from a lot of the poor Arab nations, and they live essentially as slaves. They lock them in these, um, uh, these trailers at night. They work, you know, tremendously long days for next to nothing. Well, down in Yemen, which is this, again, real small section of the Arabian Peninsula just to the Saudi south, you've got, again, um, almost the exact same population down there, about 30 million. And they are an incredibly young population, and they are dirt poor. So Saudi Arabia has always been terrified um, of Yemen because the potential for you know such a large population group to um, you know essentially launch an offensive on Saudi um, in their poverty. Well, that's always been their greatest fear. Well, of course, Iran, because of the fact that the Yemenis you have this large, very large, significant Shia uh, majority down there, they have been. Um, using the, the Houthis and supplying weapons and so forth. So that is their proxy. Um, and so really, in many ways, you could say that the Iranians control four foreign capitals. 
Um, they control Yemen, they control Lebanon, they control Iraq, they control um, Syria. So, you know, you talk about the Shia crescent, that's sort of this this arc of control that Iran has tried to extend all the way over to Syria. Well, really, there's two Shia crescents. They're going to the north and they're going to the south. And so Saudi Arabia realizes, you know, they are being surrounded, and that's why they're looking for allies in uh, in nations like Israel and the United States. Okay, Joel, we only got about, uh, or actually, we're going to skip the break, so we'll just get right into it. You just laid out a uh, an idea of a number of countries that are basically, if if and when Saudi Arabia and Iran go to war, will that what you just laid out uh, the the control of Syria and Iraq and Lebanon? fall to Iran, who has control of it now, will these countries actively fight in a war uh, for Iran? And how will that look in the Middle East? Um, it wouldn't just be Saudi Arabia and Iran fighting each other, would it? No, and you know, and that's the thing is um, Saudi Arabia has been forming a Sunni alliance with Egypt, with Saudi, Arabia, with Saudi Arabia, to a degree with Turkey. Turkey's kind of the wild card um, because they have their own agenda. Um, as well as Jordan. Okay, so some of these larger Sunni countries are aligning against uh, Iran. Um, it, Iran already has some guesstimates. Estimates have about 40,000 troops in Syria. Um, there was a very large billboard. I, I posted a picture of it. Uh, a friend from Tehran actually sent me a picture in Tehran. This large billboard, and it has this um, Iranian soldier, and he's sort of beckoning. Um, everyone to come and, and under it, it's calling people in Iran to go fight in Syria. And so just anyone off the street, if you want to go fight for Iran and Syria, you can go. They'll give you a thousand dollars USD per month. If you die, they'll pay for your family for life. Um, so Iran is actively, you know, sending soldiers into Syria. Once Syria recovers, um, you know, yeah, then in, in a lot of ways you'll have Syria fighting on behalf of Iran. Hezbollah already is essentially an Iranian military just to Israel's north. I mean, it's sitting there right on the Golan Heights. I'm sure you've seen the pictures where if you go to Israel right now, I've got a really close friend that lives right on the border up in the Golan. You can go up there. There's a sign in Israel, you can see it, and it's got the Hezbollah flag. It's, there's a, right next to it is a Palestinian flag, and there's a picture of Ayatollah Khomeini, um, and it says, "We are coming for you." It says it in Arabic and Hebrew. Um, so you've got the Hezbollah flag, the Iranian flag, the Palestinian flag, a picture of the Ayatollah from Iran facing Israel, say, "We are coming for you." So yeah, there's no question that, that uh, these other nations will fight with Iran. And that's why I talk about the balkanization or sort of this just emerging Sunni-Shia conflict. Everyone's sort of falling into line, alignment, and inevitably this thing's going to break. Okay. So do you believe that it's inevitable for the war between these two powers? Yeah, I mean, eventually it's going to happen. And, you know, again, looking at biblical prophecy... Uh, people always say, well, you know, what conditions are going to be on the ground whereby Israel and the Palestinians will somehow agree to some, you know, because the Bible says eventually a peace treaty, a covenant, whatever whatever it, it's actually going to be, uh, that's coming. But the question is, what is going to force them into making this agreement? Because currently the Palestinians are not going to make an agreement with Israel, and currently Israel's not going to make an agreement with the Palestinians. So I've always speculated, and again, it's speculation, but I think it makes a lot of sense, 
that there are going to be some major regional wars that are going to uh, force both sides to see a benefit to entering into this uh, this treaty. And so, um, you know, it, in the in the near term, it's going to be an intra-Islamic war, um, but long term, it's actually going to be a world um, coming against Israel. Okay. We, at the uh, beginning of this hour, talked about the possibility of Saudi Arabia moving off the petrodollar. If this, if and when this conflict happens, do you, how will this affect our, uh, the U.S. dollar and the global economy overall? I know you mentioned the possibility of $300 a barrel oil. Yeah, I mean, inevitably, if, if a full-blown war breaks out, so much oil production is going to sh- get shut down. And, you know, with this, every day counts. Um, and that's just, that's just, if there's a war, but now you think if someone really acts, um, you know, the Iranians, they're, again, I said very calculating, but they are determined. Um, when you look at the, you know, military analysts, different reports that I've read say that that entire west coast, that wet southern west coast of Iran, as it's looking across um, the Strait of Hormuz looking across to Saudi Arabia. All of their oil fields are there on the east coast of Saudi Arabia. And that whole west coast of Iran is lined with silkworm missiles that are buried deep enough that apparently we can't even, you know, if we bombed them for a couple of days, we wouldn't even take them all out. And all they have to do is launch those missiles across and take out all of those refineries on the east coast of Saudi Arabia. And I know they say that we're, the United States is no longer that dependent on Saudi Arabia for our oil, but, um, you know, other reports say that if, if essentially the entire Western economy is dangling by that thread of those, um, string of refineries on the East Coast. And what's interesting as well is that a lot of the population, um, of the workers in Saudi Arabia that work in the fields there on the East, in the refineries, they are um, primarily Shia, as well as they're in Bahrain, which is sort of the, the little island nation right off the coast of um, Saudi Arabia. So Iran oftentimes will foment, um, uh, you know, protests and different things among a lot of the workers. So they even have sort of their potential proxies right there. But, you know, I mean, there's just so many scenarios, so many scenarios whereby we could be sunk. And that's why, I mean, going all the way back to John McCain, you know, drill, baby, drill. Um, yeah, we've been, we've been doing a bit with some of the fracking and, and different things, but we are still, I mean, we're 10, 15 years behind. And this is why oil independence is an issue of national security. But for some reason, our leaders just never seem to quite get it. And, and it would be why? Because again, because most of our leaders have been bought and paid for by the Saudi royals. You look at the amount of money that the presidents all, every single one of the past presidents, I mean, the Bush family, probably the worst of them all, the Clintons, um, a lot of evidence with Obama. But, I mean, these guys are receiving hundreds of millions of dollars with the Bushes. It's, it's, um, it's, um, uh, 150, uh, no, I'm sorry, 1 billion, 500 million dollars directly from the Saudi royals. Um, you know, they're not given that money because they're great philanthropists. They are buying presidents. And that's the reason why they're not as- acting in our our best interest because they've been bought and paid for um, by the Saudi royals by Ramco and um, you know it's unfortunate but it's transparent I mean you know it's it's this is real. Okay, uh, I, I'll, I'm just curious, Joel. Um, 
a billion five. This is what you're saying to the from the Saudis to the Bush dynasty, basically. Yeah, yeah. O- overhauling of a period of time. I mean, throughout pretty much their whole period, there's a whole book. Um, Bob Wood, Bob Woodward did a book called House of Bush, House of Saud. Oh yeah, yeah, I've got that. Yeah, yeah, and you know the Bushes are much better. See, the Clintons just open up their account. And they're like, "Oh, look here, thirty-three million dollars!" Like, you know, they're just sort of brazen criminals. The Bushes are a bit more calculating. It's it's often through friendly loans and different banks, and you know, friend does this and that. But uh, what Woodward does an amazing job. I mean, it's it's a tedious book because there's just so much information. But he just is an incredible investigative journalist, and he documents that it ends up being about one point four seven um, billion dollars uh, has been transferred between the father and the son during their career. And when you look at the relationship of the Bush family with the Saudi royals, I mean, they are, um, you know, every every time there's any Bush wedding, half of the people there are Saudi royals. I mean, you know, you, you, you kind of start looking at it and you go, what in the world? Think of this on 9-11. Just think of this one fact. On 9-11 and for the next few days, the entire airfield of the United States was completely shut down. The only people that were allowed to fly, they were not American senators, they were not wealthy businessmen, it was the Saudi princes. Those are the only people that were allowed to fly freely around in the mm-hmm. United States. Um, it's, it's unbelievable, but that's sort of a, another whole topic. It is it is unbelievable. And Joel, back to <clears throat> what you were talking about oil. I saw this uh, this article was uh, from yesterday or this morning. According to the International Energy Agency, oil production in the United States has doubled in the last eight years, and they project that will double again maybe in the next six years. And we have <clears throat> they say that there is an extra uh, two billion barrels of oil in uh, which is driving down oil prices today. But you're, so we get most of our oil from Saudi Arabia, even though we've increased drilling, even though we've done a number of things to cr- increase production here, we're still very dependent on Saudi oil. Yeah. And, it, and they still have the largest proven oil reserves in the world. You know, we can look at Argentina, we can look at all these other places that oil is being discovered, we're finding it, but they still have the largest proven oil reserves. And so, uh, you know, yeah, things could change in the future, and Bill, Ben Salman sees that. He sees that they have to shift from just a, a – because the only two things that Saudi Arabia exports right now is oil and radical Islam. And, you know, if a country is going to continue into the future, he knows they need to modify their economy and, and um, diversify their economy. But at least for now, at least for the foreseeable future, um, there's still plenty of oil under that sand. Okay. No, the United States is a great importer of both of those exports, that's for sure. Well, Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well. Okay, so Saudi Arabia, and just on this uh, Saudi Arabia-Iran conflict, it, it's going. It's not going to be a war between two nations. It's going to be a, a really a regional war. Any possibility that it, it turns into World War III? Because I know we have a lot of players in this. You have, again, as you said, Saudi Arabia backed by the U.S., backed by by Israel and possibly Turkey and some of these other nations in the Middle East. But then you have countries like China and Russia, even North Korea to some extent, having uh, major interest in the Middle East. What will this look like as far as the world is concerned if we see this regional conflict? Yeah, well, you've, you've definitely got a few wild cards. North Korea, obviously, is a wild card. China, in a lot of ways, to me, I, I on understanding China's role in all of it. 
Um, but clearly Russia, clearly the United States. The United States is allied with the Saudi bloc, and Russia is clearly allied with the Iranian bloc. So the potential for both of us to get pulled into this is huge. Um, you know, again, what that would mean for China, I don't know. Now, interestingly enough, uh, and sadly, Russia has been um, far more, they have approached the Middle East far more intelligently than the United States over the past several years. Um, you know, foreign policy should always be just pure, raw self-interest. And uh, Russia has been very good at pursuing their own self-interest in the Middle East, but they've they've seemed to have done so quite wisely. Um, you know, a lot of people are asking, why is Russia there? Well, it's primarily just all of their whole economy, again, is energy. And so you've got some pretty massive energy pipelines there crisscrossing through Syria. That's where most of their interest is. They've thrown themselves in, therefore, with Iran. Um, but they know how to dance the dance, you know, as well with Saudi Arabia and with Israel and so forth. So hopefully cooler heads will prevail um, and that we won't get pulled into this. Unfortunately, the way, from my perspective, the way the United States has been relating to the Middle East, um, including so far the past year with this current administration, we've made some good strides. What we just did with the Kurds, in my opinion, is going to go down in um, American foreign policy history as one of the great shames um, of a few generations. I mean, we literally betrayed um, one of the greatest potential allies, some of the best people, and we literally just sold them out to Iran. They, for the past few years, they took in hundreds of thousands of refugees. They took on ISIS almost single-handedly, and uh, once ISIS is out of the way, we essentially just step back and really gave the green light for uh, Iran through this group called the uh, Popular Mobilization Units, or Hashd al-Shabi. Um, they call it a, a Iranian-backed militia in northern Iraq. We essentially handed uh, the Kurds over, and, um, you know, we've lost Iraq. For, for all intents and purposes, Iraq is a failed state. It's now, again, um, it, it's under Iranian control, and it's a shame. In my opinion, we should have taken the Injulik Air Force Base there that's in eastern Turkey, and we should have moved it right outside of Erbil. We should have established a beachhead with the Kurds, supported independence, and just said, Iraq has failed, forget Baghdad, we're done with it. Um, but instead, we're still functioning under this old model of trying to preserve Iraqi nationalism and get behind a body. We've already lost, we've we've lost them, and we're still playing these old games. And it's uh, it's it's embarrassing, to be honest with you. I mean, it's a shameful to the for, with regard to the Kurds, but it's embarrassing um, when we see how 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 poorly we're failing in the Middle East. Joel, who was behind the decisions with the Kurds? Was that the Obama administration? Was that the State Department? I mean, in terms of what just happened, it's this current administration. Now, again, I don't know who are the primary players that are that are giving advice. I don't know who um, Trump's primary advisors are. Uh, unfortunately, you know, um, it's always the globalists. It's always you know the same old uh, usual suspects that seem to prevail. And uh, very rarely do these unique uh, thinkers, you know, um, when you get folks like um, Gorka and uh, Bannon, some of these different thinkers that are original thinkers that think outside the box, that are willing to do things differently, they don't last long. Um, and, uh, you know, I, from what I can see with uh, Tillerson and some of these guys, they seem to be just playing the same old, same old. So it's just a continuation, what we saw with Obama 
unfortunately, we're seeing um, some of it uh, with Trump. I, I don't want to cast him all as negative. He's making some, he's doing some things that are fantastic. Um, again, when he went to Saudi Arabia, you know, President Obama went there and bowed before the king. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump went over there and they practically bowed before him. So, yeah. I mean, he's he's doing a lot of things right. Um, and he, you know, he got away with this hundred, hundred, uh, what was it, a hundred billion dollar arms deal. And I say, hey, yeah. great, we'll we'll take that money. Um, but unfortunately, he's not doing everything right. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm uh, a Trump basher. I'm supporting Trump, but uh, you know, he's he still is making some of the same old mistakes. Yeah, I mean, we we see some of that too now. Um, we've seen the we, we've had uh, Sergeant Sangari on. Uh, several times, and he talks at length about what was happening in the Middle East with ISIS and the Kurds, and and described basically what you just described that they were, you know, they took on ISIS head on, and um, they weren't getting any help. Even uh, forces that were fighting them were being armed by the U.S. just a, a few years ago, and we know it's a, a very volatile, unfortunate situation there. Um, this war, this conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, after, who who do you think would would be victorious? Or if uh, you don't have a, a clear idea of who's going to win, what happens when one of the nations of the two becomes victorious and and really takes over power in that region? Yeah. Uh, in, in order to answer this, I'm going to lean on the Bible. Okay. So um, uh, here we are. We're toward the end of 2017. So January 2015 was the first time that I went over to northern Iraq, went up there into Kurdistan. And um, during that time, I had been, again, ISIS was six months fresh, had just swept out of Syria. And I had my head buried in Daniel chapter 8. And uh, this was just a, a prophecy that I'd been studying and just digging through and as I got up there I sat down and I recorded for the first time a teaching one hour teaching where I just walked through Daniel 8 and I said the next major event here in the Middle East is we're going to see essentially an Iranian invasion an Iranian invasion of Iraq of Syria um, if my reading of Daniel 8 is correct that's what we should expect to see now again we've seen that unfold um, over the past year and a half, the past two years, we've seen it unfold. They've used ISIS as an excuse. Again, they sent in the Shia militia, Hashd al-Shabi. Um, but I do believe it's going to become a bit more overt, not just through proxies, but a full-blown, a full-scale Iranian invasion. And it seems to say that Iranian, Iran is successful. Sort of the two-horned uh, ram that butts out. Um, and, it, and it may even be in coordination with the Kurds because it says the kings of Media and Persia. Um, you look at most commentaries and they say, well, that was fulfilled historically with the Medes and the Persians and then Alexander the Great. The problem is when you look at it, and I encourage your listeners to get open up Daniel chapter 8 and look at it, when the angel Gabriel comes along and he explains to Daniel, and he says, I'm going to give you the interpretation. He goes, Daniel's vision, it concerns the time of the end. Daniel falls down and passes out. Gabriel picks him back up. He goes, Daniel, listen to me. This vision concerns the final period of indignation, for it is about the the last days. He says it three times in two sentences. Um, and so for that reason, I've been looking at it and saying, could this entire prophecy be an end times prophecy? Not just sort of, most people look at it, they go, well, it's Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, 
Then when you get to you know the latter years of Alexander's empire, you get to this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's kind of a foreshadow of the Antichrist. But again, if we take Gabriel's words at face value and actually listen to what he says rather than just listening to tradition, um, then the entirety of the prophecy has end-time meaning. If that's the case, then we would expect to see a massive regional Iranian invasion of the Middle East, and it says that that goat would would be um, exceedingly powerful. He would do as he pleases. And so, unfortunately for Saudi Arabia, unfortunately for the United States, that would seem to indicate that Iran's going to be the winner in the in the near short term. Um, and then from there, out of that comes the wild card, and that's the nation of Turkey. And um, what I've been saying all along is right now, Iran is the greatest existential threat in the world to Israel. It's the greatest threat. Um, it's the biggest and most dangerous threat. You know, everyone looks at ISIS. Yeah, ISIS, they're the most perverse, the most disgusting, the most evil. But Iran is clearly the most powerful um, in, the, in the short term. But after that, in my opinion, the real beast, if you will, is going to be the nation of Turkey. And um, again, if the prophecy, if my reading of it is accurate, then Turkey is going to come and defeat Iran. And um, and that's when we'll sort of see the emergence of a, a much larger regional coalition that will come under the umbrella of, uh, of Turkey and essentially return to the Neo-Ottoman Empire of uh, 85 years ago. We're, we're, that's what we're seeing right now, again, with the Western vacuum in the Middle East. We're seeing the old order return to what it was. Did I hear you right that uh, you talked about a ground a ground war and um, like an invasion? Uh, were you talking about the Saudi Iran conflict that there would be actually troops on 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 the ground from one of the other countries, or was that after the? Yeah, a full blown a full blown. I would expect to see a full blown Iranian invasion okay. in Iraq, in Syria, and into the Middle East. I mean, possibly even you know I. I it, if, again, you know, I'm not primarily a, a military analyst, um, but when you look at Daniel 8, it says that that two-horned ram butts out toward the north, toward the east, and toward the south. Okay. And, uh, you know, that pretty much covers the whole Middle East. So you answered the next question, is this prophetic? Do you believe that the events we're seeing unfold today in the Middle East uh, deal with what you just talked about, uh, Daniel 8 and other um, end-time prophecies in the Bible? Yeah, you know, and, and again for clarity, I uh, in no way, shape, or form, I'm not a prophet. I don't um, argue that my interpretations are the uh, the end all to end all. You know, every prophecy teacher out there, if they have a lick of humility, has to say, you know, we're just doing our best to interpret the words of the prophets. But that said, one of the big things that I've been really emphasizing the past ten years is that as Christians, we need to pay attention to biblical geography, to prophetic geography. You look at the words of the prophets, not just Daniel, but Ezekiel, you look at them all. And the nations, the peoples, the tribes um, that are the primary leaders and players in this coming Antichrist coalition, the Bible names their names. It tells us where they are. It tells us who they are. And they're all Middle Eastern, North African nations. Um, you know, you have a handful of passages that people will look to to try to say this is Rome. Um, but again, those passages are arguable, but they're always the symbolic, the difficult, or the inferred passages that people use to arrive at that conclusion. 
Um, and, and that's fine. People can make those arguments and, and, and they could very well be right. But when we look at the literal, clear, repeated passages where the prophets are saying, you know, Philistia or Arabia, you know, you look at Ezekiel 30, it talks about an alliance of nations. It talks about Libya, Arabia, Egypt, uh, Sudan. It says Cush, Lud, which is Lydia, that's Turkey. You know, I mean, it pretty much lists the whole Middle East and it says, that these are the nations that in the context of the day of the Lord, that God will judge them because they are in league. They have an alliance against Israel. And so, uh, in my opinion, you know, we're, we need to pay attention to the Middle East. Why? Because that is the context of the Bible. The Bible is and always has been thoroughly Jerusalem and Israel-centric. If we want to rightly interpret the Bible, we have to begin by acknowledging its context and acknowledging that oftentimes as Westerners, we read and impose our Western worldview into the pages of prophecy. And we assume that our worldview, we assume that God's worldview is our worldview, and we try to impose it onto the Bible. We need just to come to the Bible, you know, on its own terms and understand its very Middle Eastern context. And that's why all these battles that are coming, are they primarily, they're going to involve the whole world. But we need to emphasize the things that the Bible emphasizes, and we need to be very careful where the Bible is silent. Okay. If I remember, Joel, we had uh, one of the last times you were on, we had a discussion about one of your books about Saudi Arabia and Mystery Babylon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So essentially what I argue is that when you look at the seven persecuting pagan empires of history, you look at the seven heads of the beast of Revelation, you go all the way back to the beginning of the biblical narrative, the pagan empire that Satan was using to try to wipe out God's promised plan, try to wipe out the Jewish people, was Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then it was Assyria. And, you know, the Bible tells that story. And then it was Babylon. Then it was Medo-Persia. Then it was Greece. Then it was Rome. Rome was the sixth. And Revelation tells us that there's another one coming after Rome, the seventh. And then the seventh will actually be an eighth. So after Rome, there is yet another two-phased pagan, persecuting, antichrist empire. And I don't believe that Rome is the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth, because again, when we go back to Daniel, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, it reveals a two-phased empire in the last days, not a three-phase. And so I believe that that empire, that final pagan empire that meets the criteria, that follows the the pattern of all these previous empires is Islam. That Islam is the beast empire. Question of mystery Babylon, what is it? Well, it's very simple. It is the capital. It's the heart of the reigning beast empire of the day. Okay. In the first century, that was Rome. In the, in, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, it was Babylon. Today, in these days, the great pagan city in the earth is Mecca. And the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, as we said earlier, they export oil. They export radical Islam. Saudi Arabia is this, has effectively um, affected the greatest propaganda campaign in the history of mankind, the greatest evangelistic campaign in the history of mankind, which is to say that they have funded the spread of radical Islam all over the world to the tune of outspending all evangelical mission spending times four over the past 40 years. So when you look at ISIS, you look at Al-Qaeda, you look at Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, all of these groups, they are all funded by Saudi Arabia. 
So it's the spiritual. Mecca is clearly the spiritual heart of Islam today. Saudi Arabia is the financial source of the most anti-Christ religion that mankind has ever known. Could something else emerge in the future? That's possible. But right now, uh, Mecca is clearly the greatest city of idolatry that mankind has ever known. If I can just interject this, I think this is perhaps one of the most informative uh, hours, segments that we have we have done. And so timely with everything going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about, well, where does, if at all, where does Russia fit into this? And I know Joe mentioned this earlier. I know that there was kind of some peripheral discussion. Um, but Russia, your ideas or your uh, your opinion based on your yep. research? Yep. Well, obviously, Russia is incredibly relevant on the on the global scale. There's no question about that. Uh, the question, however, is, and this is really what it comes down to. Is Russia the primary player in the prophecy of Ezekiel 38-39, the Battle of Gog-Magog? And when you go back, you look at the, the interpretation of this text down through history, which I've done, surveyed every commentary that you can find throughout history, what you see is that a far better case is made that Turkey, not Russia, is the leader of this coming Gog-Magog coalition. Um, the idea that it's Russia is rooted in the idea that Magog, because Gog is the leader of this invasion, is from Magog. Um, the way that people conclude that it's Russia is they say, well, in the first century, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that Magog became the Scythian. So what they do is they start out with Ezekiel, again, who lived five, six hundred years before uh, Josephus, and they take these names and they trace them down through history. And so they go, the Magog people, they migrated, and then they became the Scythians, and they migrated around the Black Sea to the Russian steppes, etc., etc. Now, I call that the, the bloodline lineage wild goose chase method of interpretation. And I go, if you want to do it that way, that's fine. But you have to do it with all of the names in the prophecy. And no one does that. What they do is they do it with Magog, but then with the other names, they interpret them according to how they were known in Ezekiel's day. They use what's called the historical grammatical or the grammatical historical method of interpretation, which I would argue is the right way. Um, but if you do the same thing, for instance, with Gomer, um, Gomer became the Gimari, became the Cimmerians, they became the Celts, the Gauls. You don't see any books that say the coming Irish invasion of Israel. Um, but, you know, all the books are the coming Russian invasion of Israel. Why? Because, again, that made sense from an American Cold War perspective, etc. But if we stick with the grammatical historical perspective, we go, how did Ezekiel and his immediate audience understand all these names? Then we see that Gog is from Magog, he's the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and that these were tribes, peoples that were in the region of Asia Minor of Turkey. So I know that's a little technical from an interpretive perspective, but my point is this. I don't believe Russia is a prophesied player in Ezekiel 38 like so many people do. In no way, shape, or form am I saying that Russia is not relevant 
I'm just saying that I don't believe biblical prophecy is primarily pointing to Russia in the way that many Christian prophecy, you know, aficionados or teachers have sort of claimed over the past, uh, you know, few generations. Um, I just don't think a solid hermeneutical case can be made for that. I think a, a much better case can be made um, for a Turkish-led coalition of nations that will attack Israel. And it just so happens, again, 10 years ago when I started teaching this, it didn't make sense because Turkey was moderate. Um, but 10 years later, we've seen the direction that Erdogan has taken Turkey, mm-hmm. and uh, everything seems to be falling into well, place. How, how quickly in 10 years is just a blink of an eye in the context of, of history. Joel Richardson is wow. our guest. The website is joelstrumpet.com. Joel, you've taken us to the to the end of the show just uh, in, the, in the last 60 seconds. I see you have a, a number of interesting um, book and DVD bundles and deals on on your website. Um, what's some of your What's one of your favorite books that uh, or book bundles that you got going right now? Well, I've got this one here, the Mystery Babylon bundle. That's again my latest book, Mystery Babylon. I throw in a three hour debate that I did with Dr. Tommy Ice, and I throw in another book there called The Babylon Connection. This is, in my opinion, one of these prophetic classics that. Uh, very few people have read, but I think every student of biblical prophecy needs to read that book. So, um, yeah, the Mystery Babylon bundle was sort of my uh, my most important bundle that I've been uh, encouraging folks to get here the past several months. Awesome, folks. Go to joelstrumpet.com, and on the top right-hand side, click on the link that says Store, and there you can get individual books, individual book bundles, and DVDs. Joel, it was a, a fast-moving and wow. fascinating and very informative hour. Thank you so much for taking the time out to join us tonight. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Lord bless you guys. God bless you, too. Lord you have a great bless you. Wow. I, I'm, I'm st- I mean, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this again, this segment. Yes. Your thoughts? I mean, yes. <laughs> no, it was a great interview, and, and thank goodness that, uh, you know, the, the everything that's been going on in Saudi Arabia that we've been we have Stan and, and people like Joel, and, and we've been paying some attention to it ourselves. But I agree with Joel that there's a lot more here that well, Joel right. understands a lot of it, and he's written about it. So go to joelstrumpet.com and, and get some of those books, absolutely. But I think this is the beginning of something uh, prophetic. I think it's the beginning of a big change that we're going to see in the Middle East after we see a conflict that could potentially have uh, consequences for not only the U.S. and the U.S. dollar and and uh, the world reserve currency status, but also involve another number of other countries. And we know that uh, this next conflict that we will see might be a, a prelude to a, a much larger world war type conflict. You know, how can people look at what's going on today and not believe, for example, in the accuracy, the historical and the prophetic Accuracy of the Bible, the mm-hmm. Holy Bible. When you when you look when you overlay prophecy with current events over prophecy, wow! It, it's yeah. There's a wow factor there, indeed. And, yeah, and read people, your scriptures, pay attention. And Joel Richardson, I, I've I, I have many of, but not many, a few of his books, and um, from way back. And I have to tell you, he's been right on the money with. A lot, everything I've read, basically. So, so that will well. that will do it for us tonight. 
We will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow we got an interesting subject uh, oh, with a guest. We're going to be talking Las about Vegas. Las Vegas, so don't miss that. You got any questions? There shouldn't be any questions about Las Vegas, right? No, we had all the answers. Yeah. And, <laughs> hey, 9 o'clock, uh, come join me on the Doug Hagman Radio Show, 9 o'clock a.m., or 9 o'clock Eastern Time in the morning, and then uh, Joe at 2 with John. Yep. Join us. Have a great night, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow.